Today's show, it's a double whammy. It's a twofer. It's a two for the price of one. It is absolutely two, two, two episodes in in one sitting that you're just not going to want to miss. The first up, Doctor Strange 2 in the multiverse of madness. What is going on? What's going on with the reshoots? We had the big Super Bowl trailer. What's getting edited out? What's getting added in? What's with them testing this movie as much as they are? Really, honestly, what is at stake for Disney? And I have the most perfect Brady Bunch, Marsha and Molly breakdown, because that is exactly where this thing lies. Marsha and Molly, one of my favorite Brady Bunch episodes of all time. It applies here more than you will ever possibly know. Then, to close out the show, comic books and sports. Why I think the connectivity between the two is closer than anyone could possibly imagine. Charts, uh, uh, playoff seating, uh, uh, you know, you know, sales and, 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 and positioning for, 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 for the playoffs and, and, and chart position. It all matters. It's competitive. It's never been more competitive and it all borrows from the world of sports, coaching, editing, picking your players, your rosters, changing things up. I go all the way in why I think comics and sports are so tied together, at least in my mind they are. And that is that is just scratching the surface of all that we're going to cover today on an all new Observations. Hey there, welcome to a very special edition of Observations. I'm Rob Leifeld, I'm your host of Observations, where we talk about uh, comic book, pop culture, movies, streaming, toys, trading cards, uh, all of it, games. We cover it all here, Observations on the regular. Why is today so special? I'll tell you why today is so special, because it's broken up into two episodes. You're getting this kind of a preface episode first and then the 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 wrap up it really is kind of two equal episodes today i know i sometimes jam and do two topics but this is really two completely uh uh different uh topics uh in, in as complete as i've done them before and and we'll uh you know wrap it up with a little uh stay tuned at the end and get your little music in there before we segue into the next topic so today we're going to cover dr strange uh in the mouth of madness, into the mouth of madness, whatever. Doctor Strange two, the big uh, uh, trailer dropped, but we're going to talk about all the developments with this this film because it really seems like it's just uh, popping through, just through 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 the community, through the culture, and it's it's worth taking a, a hard stop and examining everything that's gone into what is going on with that film. Then the second half, the back half, is about sports and comics and why I find so much connective tissue similarity between both of them. So right now, staying with Dr. Strange. Into the Mouth of Madness, because uh, this trailer, and a, a, a trailer was shown, a new, um, sorry guys, Dr. Strange in the multiverse of madness. It only took me, you know, a minute to, to nail that. In the multiverse of madness. There's a mouthful. Say that 10 times fast. Okay, so this uh, second newest, more expansive trailer dropped after the Super Bowl. I mean, give them props. They met the moment. Disney knew all those uh, all those 
eyeballs, 37 million eyeballs in the United States, 100 million eyeballs worldwide tuned in to watch this trailer. So, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness has uh, it has a a steep climb, and I'll uh, I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to I'm going to take you back, and obviously uh, we all know that that Spider Man No Way Home has been an absolute monster. I I, I want to say, and I really firmly believe this, having grown up in Southern California, having so many friends in the entertainment business. Uh, sometimes you'll see a, a non-premiere movie like like the second weekend of Licorice Pizza, like my wife and did my wife and I did in early December. And you walk in, and everyone there is industry. Between my wife and her time in the entertainment business, her two sisters are in the entertainment business. Uh, we have family beyond that that's in the entertainment business. Uh, our son shot two movies last summer, so. We're kind of on the fringe, on the out, on the, on the outside of that. Um, between all the comic book adaptations, between the Deadpool films, between Profit, between everything I've got going on, we know a lot of people. I've met every major head of all the studios. I've seen, I, I've been at this so long that I've seen executives who started out being executives go on to get their golden parachute deal, which means you know their time at the at the studio was finished, but they didn't want to let them you know, just wander off and be somebody's, somebody else's asset. So they get a production deal at Universal or a production deal at Paramount or a production deal at Warner's to keep them, to keep them around. And you, you look around and it's the second week of a limited release because Licorice Pizza was only playing in Westwood for a month. They did a really great job of just keeping it in Westwood. And, and they would tell you before they showed it, this is the only screen in California that has it. And then there is one screen in New York that's playing it twice. So you go to stuff like this and you see industry people. The reason I'm telling you this and all the relationships that we've cultivated over, gosh, 30 years of doing this entertainment stuff longer for my wife and her family is, uh, I mean, you, you just get to know people and everyone loves to tell tales of all of their journeys or goings on goings on or their their happenings in the movie business and let me tell you no one saw the giant grosses for no way home coming they let's say they saw the movie doing a billion even in the pandemic even though it was coming in december and before the new variant was raging uh that they were still like, well, there's probably going to be some hesitancy with getting people to the theaters because we're just coming out. It feels like we're in the the early stages of exiting before again the variant raged in into the whole you know world system again and crashed it over the holidays, and that didn't slow it down. Spider-Man No Way Home made monster bucks with the Omicron, with the the the, the you know. The, the, in the middle of this pandemic, okay, with all the COVID, you would have said, a billion, billion be great, right? Nothing has even come close to touching that. You guys, as of today, as of this writing, as of box office mojos reporting, as I'm doing this, Spider-Man No Way Home has earned $1.8 billion and it's not slowing down. It is, it is now surpassing what they had projected at the end of December. I'm going to read you something in a minute from Deadline in December 28th because that is really important in, in shaping this whole story. 
um, and, and you're going to find out why Spider-Man is so important to Doctor Strange. It is deep. Uh, so that, so the, the, the bomb, the, 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 the big deal here is that Spider-Man way, way overperformed the most aggressive forecast, even after it had yielded so much money early on three weeks of box office receipts. And, uh, then they made this forecast and it's now gone way past that forecast. Okay. And again, I'm going to read you that from one of the leading industry uh, magazines that did a really great breakdown. And, and that actually serves two purposes when I'm, when I eventually, you know, uh, 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 bring that into our discussion. Cause it's really important on several fronts. So in the long and the short Spider-Man, no way home, you know, completely overachieves in a pandemic, giving everybody what they want. Everyone drives, just drives them crazy. People just can't get enough. They want to go back again and again and again and again. So Spider-Man, as you know, after the first Andrew Garfield movies, there was doubt as to how they they should proceed. Sony and the brain trust at Sony, who was putting out the Spider-Man films, had been disappointed with the second uh, outing with Andrew Garfield with the Jamie Foxx Electro and the uh, Dane DeHaan uh, Goblin portrayal. And it just it just didn't feel like it fit together in the way that we were expecting Uh you know, the Marvel movies and even the DC movies, the, the Batman movies that we had been enjoying under Chris Nolan. So, and this is in the uh, the history of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I did an entire dedicated episode on this. It's a very, uh, to, to say it's a very expensive coffee table book is underselling it. It is a very <laughs> expensive, two-volume, uh, exhaustive uh, story of how they built the Marvel universe, all the risks they took, the moves they made, and they cover in depth the situation that Marvel and Sony found themselves in when in at the end of, you know, of the second Garfield film, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, that uh, Amy Pascal, who has continued on and is, is a producer of these films and is a producer of all the Tom Holland films, she finally reached out to Marvel, reached out to Feige and said, hey, maybe we could have a meeting of the minds and maybe there's something in, in here for both of us so that you could reboot uh, Spider-Man along with us or, or, or help us along. Well, Marvel had wanted access to Spider-Man and felt that it really would uh, greatly benefit them. They were right. Obviously, we all know they were right. Um, and they implemented him, made, wasted no time whatsoever implementing him into Civil War, Endgame, uh, and and uh, Infinity War, but they had to work this deal out first. And when uh, the talks originally opened, and Feige had really in in the book again the the birth of the cinematic universe. Something you need to know: they are the winners. They have been the winners of the box office derby the last you know fifteen years. So the winners write the history. This is published by the MCU. It is. Um, it presents things very much from how they view their own success. And and nobody has had more success than them, period. They have become the gold standard for profitability, uh, for, for grabbing maximum box office dollars in pop culture. So Feige meets with uh, Amy Pascal between 2013-2014. 
and says, look, I've thought this over and, and, and here's, here's the conclusion I've come to. You need to just give us the films and let us do them. In this chapter of the book, Amy Pascal throws Kevin Feige out. She says, get, get the F out of here. I'm not having this. What are you doing? She feels very betrayed that he would be so aggressive in basically saying, just move aside and let us move in. Well, it says that a couple weeks later, she reached out and said, okay, I, I, I wasn't expecting what you said, but I'm ready to deal. I'm ready to hear you out. And of course, Kevin then lays out his plan. The two business uh, components uh, between Sony and Disney have to work out how they're going to work this out. Well, we all know Tom Holland was chosen again. The, 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 I think the, the other thing that was hard for Amy Pascal to hear after the, you know, uh, all of the deliberation to choose Andrew Garfield and have him succeed Tobey Maguire, which a bit was which was a big deal in and of itself. You know, Feige's like, no, we got to start over. We got to get a third guy. We got this younger version. We we want to have our version. So so again, that was that was something that they had to wrestle with and they were struggling with. But but again, it was part of the deal that Marvel would recast along with Sony, a new actor. And just so you know, Sony has the rights. To Spider-Man in the same way that Fox had the rights to the X-Men, Deadpool, Fantastic Four. They control the cinematic media rights of these characters. That's why you got into the uh, into the multiverse. Spider-Man into the multiverse uh, from, from Lord Miller, produced by Lord Miller. The excellent, won an Oscar. Won a freaking Oscar. Sony won an Oscar for that film. Be- a best picture. People go, oh, but, but Marvel's won for special effects. This is a giant category. A best animated feature. Sony one with into the Spider-Man into the multiverse. Okay, so uh, so so Sony has had some great success in recent years with Venom. Uh, neither movie is is going to float my boat, but they've both been incredibly successful. The first one making a billion dollars, the first Venom making a billion, the second one is extremely profitable for Sony. They, these these Venom movies are making them generous amounts of profits but they need to get spider-man straight they needed they they decided to do this almost a decade ago 2013 2014 i mean we were looking at nine years ago that this this was all set in motion marvel gets holland in their films and keeps all that money from infinity war from endgame from civil war they then agreed to produce the movies for sony which obviously in homecoming they loaded with Tony Stark, you know, I don't know if you guys remember the trailers with Iron Man and Spider-Man coming right at us. I mean, they really made it look like a Marvel team-up movie. And they produced it, and Feige put his touch on it with alongside Sony, Amy Pascal, but they loaned out their genius, their, their you know, excellent taste in making these successful comic book films. And, uh, and, and that was what they got that's what they needed to do in order to get Spider-Man in their Marvel Disney films. So we watched as Homecoming, you know, did okay. It, it, it did, you know, $800 million, not a billion. And, and domestically, as I said, 2017's Spider-Man Homecoming did, you know, three-something. Um, it, it did not do, like I use as a barometer, Deadpool 2016 did not do the same business and Deadpool was R rated. I mean this is this has got Tony Stark, it's got 
you know, Downey Jr. It's got Favreau. It's got, you know, Michael Keaton as the vulture. I mean, it had all the bells and whistles, but I guess there was a bit of fatigue, like some Spider-Man fatigue. I think the the Spider-Man brand, you know, maybe people had to warm to it again, which they did because when they came back and they gave them Far From Home, it was the first, you know, epilogue to all of the events of Endgame. And we learned about the people who came back from the five-year snap and we sent it on a, we sent them on further adventures and Mysterio was introduced and we got that great cliffhanger that set up everything that we would see in No Way Home. And that movie, based on all the juice, released six weeks, seven weeks after Endgame, that, that franchise broke a billion dollars. So now they're cooking. So then they get down to business and they start plotting this third movie. And obviously, as I said, it has exceeded all of Sony's expectations. Again, what does this have to do with Doctor Strange? If you should be listening, I'm pointing it out. It's it's becoming very clear because Marvel produces, but Sony keeps the money. Even a friend of mine was like, no, that's not right. And I said, no, 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 of course it is. Sony does not get Disney's money from the Tom Holland. None of it, not a percentage, none of it. Disney keeps the Infinity War, the end game, the Civil War money, okay? Sony keeps their No Way Home money. So, Rob, how do you know this? Well, let's go and read the Deadline article that I was that I was threatening. On December 28th, Deadline.com reveals Spider-Man No Way Home already in the black from 1 billion worldwide. This is when they did this report when it hit 1 billion. Sony will see a profit of 600 million plus. Okay, so it says, given how global exhibition has been impacted by COVID with reduced capacities and on and off closures in certain territories, we haven't harped on profit and loss of theatrical movies until now. Okay, I mean, this is deadline going. Spider-Man's a phenomenon. Of course, as the first billion dollar grossing global title of the pandemic era, Sony's Spider-Man No Way Home is already bound for 242 million net profit after all worldwide home ancillaries, marketing costs, and participations are added in. However, should movie theaters remain open amidst the Omicron surge, particularly given all the COVID safety measures they've implemented, it's quite possible that Sony will see a profit that is three times what it's currently generated and end up with 610 million of profit. In their bank. Okay. These financial projections do not come from Sony, but film, but from film finance sources. So these aren't from Sony. They are from film finance sources, quite familiar with the balance sheets of what will be Culver city lot, Culver city's highest grossing movie of all time. Sony is based in Culver city. No way home is poised to best the 1.1 billion worldwide box office of 2019 Spider-Man Far From Home. This is based on an ultimate worldwide box office projection of $1.7 billion for No Way Home. Now, I just told you 10 minutes ago, as of this podcast, we are 100 million past that projection. Right now, box office mojo, Spider-Man No Way Home, $1.8 billion. So this is based, at the time of this writing, on the bullish, bullish projection that Spider-Man would do 1.7 billion worldwide. It is 100 million past this projection already, and it is really not slowing down. Uh, 
Force Awakens hit a billion overseas outside of China's $124 million gross. Spider-Man Far From Home made $28 million in Japan, and the destiny for No Way Home could likely beat that after it opens in January in Japan. Uh, it says, currently... The John Watts-directed MCU title has made $587 million international, $470 million in the U.S. for a grand total of $1,057,000,000, okay? So $1,057,000,000 as the time of this writing with a projection that it would do $1.7. We are $100 million past that. An ultimate 610 net profit for No Way Home would feasibly become Sony's most profitable movie of all time, besting the profits of the previous two Spider-Man films, as well as Sony's near $1 billion grossing title, Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. This would also represent profits for Sony greater than Disney's Avengers Infinity War, which was $500 million in profits, Star Wars Last Jedi, $417 million in profits, and Rise of Skywalker, $300 million million in profits. And they say right here, how do we get to $631 million? Really easy. It says, after exhibitions cut of the box office, global rentals, that's what they call ticket sales. It's one quick way of saying it's not a rental. It's not like, it's not like you know, um, Blockbuster. The word, when I read it, rentals means what our tickets that we pay for. Tickets at the box office. Global rentals will send $825 million back to Sony. Theatrical release cost factored in at $200 million. $248 million in global uh, uh, production, uh, uh, publicity, and advertising, okay? So they have $200 million for the production cost, $248 million in publicity and advertising, promotions and advertising. Um, Sony did get an extra $202 million in global brand promotion for advertising partners versus the $288 million from Far From Home's partners. So they got slightly less in in promotional uh in 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 promotional advertising uh than the, than the previous film. Bottom line, these box office grosses levels, these box off gro- box office gross levels will trigger an additional combined global home and TV net money minus the distribution costs of 405 million. Broken out, that means, you know, separated on the sheets. That's 135 million from a very robust domestic home market, including streaming, uh, PVOD, so video on demand, and DVD. A strong box office performance for the studio's movies can boost the value that it will command from all streaming deals. There will be 80 million from foreign home entertainment, 25 million from the U.S. from free TV. 35 million from from pay TV, and 130 million from international TV. Total revenues. Plus global theatrical rentals equals 1.23 billion. Subtract all of the worldwide promotions and advertising, the production cost, the participants and residuals of 620 million combined, and that brings Sony to a settlement of 610 million profit. So we, uh, we've, uh, you know, beat. Uh, this to a horse. It says uh, Disney covered 25% of the production and as such, they'll get 25% of the combined profit pool. It says that Disney will get $150 million in their share. Sony and Disney currently have a loaning of Marvel characters between each other under this new arrangement. Sony having Tony Stark, Nick Fury, Happy, and Benedict Cumberbatch make 
cameos in their Spider-Man movies, Spider-Man gets to star in another Disney MCU movie. So, to tighten it up, based on this, Marvel will see $150 million um, of, of, of what Sony is going to ultimately count as their giant profit. But let's go back to how much bigger, how much bigger this, I mean, 610 net profit is bigger than Infinity Wars net profit to Disney by 110 million. It's bigger than The Last Jedi by, <laughs> by 207 million. And it's bigger than Rise of Skywalker's net profits by $310 million. Sony is making bank. So what does this have to do with Doctor Strange? Look at that breakdown I just told you. Marvel put in 25% of the uh, the budget on this. Very clearly outlined. So when I was saying Marvel didn't participate, they do participate because of their 25% kicker. They 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 put in 25% of the production cost. Um, uh, and in doing so, get 25% of the pool profits. Okay? And uh, so, that leave Sony with just this giant money. Again, deadline, headline, Sony sees, you know, ultimate 600 million plus. And you guys, that was before this one, hundred million past the projections. Okay. So Sony is a rival studio to, um, to, to, to obviously to Disney and they are extremely competitive, even though they share, um, they, 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 you know, are sharing this character. They're extremely, extremely competitive. Okay. And, and everything I'm telling you is, you know, honestly to, to, uh, so that you understand, I mean, I, I try and see things as real as possible, as real as I possibly can. So what's the big follow-up? Eternals was not as big of a hit as I think anybody expected, even whether you like it or not. The, the, the box office is the box office. Bob Iger walked out when he announced that he was leaving Disney after X amount of years, several decades, guiding the company, you know, to humongous success, bought Lucasfilm, bought Marvel, brought all of the success, incorporated all the characters into the parks. Well, he left uh, with an enormous, the most billion grossing movies that any studio had ever had. In that year of 2019, if memory serves, Captain Marvel did a billion, Lion King did a billion, Aladdin did a billion, Toy Story did a billion, uh, Endgame did multiple billions, and the last Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker, did a billion. Uh, if Unless I miss my count, that's seven. Lion King, Aladdin, Toy Story... Captain Marvel, uh, Endgame, and Star Wars. Uh, so, so Aladdin, Lion King, Toy Story. Just making sure. Captain Marvel, Endgame. Yeah. So, 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 so six, maybe seven, but six for sure. Um, huge monster, monster success on par with, um, you know, nothing any other studio had seen before and Disney wanted to, and very much did let you know it. They, they let you, they let you know it on every, 
possible measure. Now, 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 as far as, uh, as, as, oh, I did. I, it is, it is seven frozen two. I forgot frozen two. you guys, Avengers Endgame, 2.7 billion worldwide. Okay. The Lion King, 1.6 billion worldwide. Frozen two, 1.4 billion. Captain Marvel, 1.1 billion. One, two, three, four. Star Wars, 1 billion. Toy Story, 1 billion. Aladdin, 1 billion. So let's do it again. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. $7 billion franchises. $7 billion grosses. Robert Iger went out on top as much as anyone could ever go out on top. His successor is named Bob Chappick. Do you think Bob Chappick does not want to continue. This is so it's taken us 26 minutes. I've walked you through this Spider-Man success because you need to have the same facts that I do. You need to have the same uh information as I do to make these same conclusions. Doctor Strange, I was on a uh a, a, a YouTube show three weeks ago with Christian Harloff. Great YouTube show. Uh, I, I I was on there talking about all manner of things, Deadpool and Doctor Strange and you know, Boba Fett, we, we just had a really good time. He's got a great show, Christian Harloff, Christian with a K, um, H-A-R-L-O-F-F. I appreciate that he had me on. We discussed Dr. Strange and the fact that it's being tested all over town. And here's, here's the deal. Here's where you really come into what I was talking about earlier when I said my wife and I were at Licorice Pizza. It was a non-premiere event. It was just limited release, but it was a Saturday night. And I'm telling you, so many people from Los Angeles in the industry from rival studios made up the crowd. My wife even said, it feels like we're at a premiere instead of just a Saturday night screening, but it was so industry packed. What am I trying to tell you? People talk in this town. Everybody has friends. They all talk. They all chat. They all exchange stories. They tell what's exciting. They tell what's frustrating. They tell the deals that might've been the deals that could have been. They tell you think they, they tell you stuff that's, that's cooking. They give you the deals that are cooking. Okay. So all around town, right around this time, right before No Way Home came out, it was announced. And you guys, you know, uh, heard this shot, heard around the world. I did an entire podcast on this about about reshoots, okay? I did an entire podcast on reshoots and how um, the, mis, the misconceptions of reshoots. And the main thing is, often... They help out tremendously. I told you guys, when I was on set of Deadpool 2, okay? Um, when I was on set of Deadpool 2, is uh, there was a great... It's it's the scene in the middle of the movie where Domino and Cable and Deadpool chase the convoy with all the mutant um, prisoners in it. And we... I, I told you, um, you know, Deadpool and Cable, that shot where Deadpool is twirling his swords and deflecting or trying to deflect Cable's bullets but you see that so many of them got through and they tattered him and they shot him and they tore up his costume but and then um cable and domino have that giant fight uh on board the convoy and they end up if you've seen it's been years obviously you've you've seen this they end up shooting black tom through his prison you know glass prison case they shoot him in the face and they kind of make an off joke about it and continue their 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 fight well when i was there in uh, September of 2017, in the last few weeks of filming, they had they were shooting on this enormous soundstage. They were shooting that scene, but that scene was very different 
Domino had not dropped in, had not reached the convoy to fight Cable. Cable and Deadpool did fight inside, but it didn't go out to the platform that was open on both sides of the streets. That was added later. And if you look closely, um, Josh is, it's been a couple months since they shot. They reshot those in March of 2018. It wrapped in September, 2017. Josh had to stay around the, the same kind of fighting weight, but those scenes, the giveaway are his hair. And maybe, I mean, the guy had gotten down to zero body fat. So, you know, he has 5% or whatever in, in these shots. It's just visible. You can see that, that this is a, that this was shot. This is how you always, you can compare wigs, weight gain, weight loss when you see this, but that sequence hadn't worked out in that in that way yet, and I'll tell you why in a minute. And Domino wasn't on there fighting with them. They added all that based on the test scores. What I saw also, what I witnessed, and I loved it, and I filmed it, is uh, I filmed it. They were, I was allowed to film and take pictures of anything they said. You know, Mr. Liefeld is allowed to film, but he is, you know, signed uh, a waiver that he won't air any. And of course, I won't, and I can't. But I videoed a session with Ryan and his stunt guy. They were on top of the convoy. They had reached the rooftop and uh, Black Tom and his thugs were fighting Ryan who did flips and kicks and ended up cutting off Black Tom's hands and head and kicking him off the convoy. And I mean, I cannot tell you how much I have rewatched this footage. It was fantastic. Of course, uh, you know, David Leach and his stunt uh, team and his 8711, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the stunt school, the stunt, uh, group that he started with his partner, Chad, who the, the, the two of them did John Wick. I mean, they have really been crucial in, in doing so much more stunt work all over Hollywood. They've really realigned the language of action in stunt films, but all these stunt performers are just having this great job doing this scene. I saw it shot three or four times. Again, flips, kicks, cuts, knocking guys off the convoy. It was it, shooting and cutting off heads and cutting off hands, and it was fantastic. Ryan texted me. Ryan emailed me after the first test screening and said, your characters are so beloved, and we're going to go back and put more of them in it. The scores and the audience said they wanted more of Cable and more of Domino than we originally put in the movie, so we're going to put more of them in. So that extended sequence, part of putting more of them in was what you saw in that convoy. Domino now making it onto the truck, fighting with Cable. Uh, Cable's fight with Deadpool pushing out further into another car of the convoy. Another part, which is, you know, was open and they did that sword thing and none of that was in the original shooting. That was all in the reshoots. So reshoots are made to react to the test scores and the audience screenings and again, I saw this done exactly the same way on Deadpool number one. So I've seen it. The 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 reshoots, they they are there to accentuate. Well, it was announced that Doctor Strange was going for for many um, many reshoots, and and of course, uh, uh, they confirmed this all late last year, late November, early December. Um, they talked of of the uh, of the reshoots and that 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 uh, Doctor Strange is going undergoing significant reshoots, shooting six days a week. Now, then we got the notice um, that that Doctor Strange reshoots were ending. 
that they were wrapping them up a few weeks back. Um, so they, they, they clearly, um, you know, had, had some different things they wanted to put through January 18th. Dr. Strange two confirms reshoots are complete. So we're not looking even, even four weeks ago, they just wrapped this. Well, here's the deal again. I know friends who tried to get into some of these test screenings because they immediately, once they shoot, you guys don't understand how fast I had to learn how fast I learned this on Deadpool one. Tim Miller would shoot a scene. He would overnight send all the footage back to his uh, digitally send the footage back to blur studio in, in Santa Monica. They would then edit it together, give him a couple different options in the morning. He would have the edited scenes. He would then look at them. I watched them um, shoot the scene where Wade packs all of his guns and ammo before going to the final battle in Deadpool number one. And then of course, remember the joke is he forgot the bag, <laughs> but he is with TJ Miller. That's when TJ says, I'm not going with you. And he's raging. He's angry. They've got Vanessa. Okay. I watched Tim shoot that the next day. He showed me the completed shot, all the different edits, the close-ups, the master, um, it was on the iPad. He just handed me an iPad. He goes, Hey, this is what we shot yesterday. It's incredible how fast they do this. So not only can they edit this fast, they then implement the edits into the final picture as they do with the reshoots. Dr. Strange has been tested a lot. Christian Harloff and I were talking about it and I said, and I made a point of saying they are testing this movie a lot. Some in, in recent weeks, they've tested this movie, uh, twice in, in, in certain weeks and word on the street is they are testing different versions, different, different elements to see how different audiences react. Orange County and Los Angeles is a hotbed of test screening. I went in 2000 to see a test screening of gladiator when the animals, the, 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 the tigers, the lions, the chariots were all just, you know, skeletal CGI models. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the block of orange, it's called now the outlets of orange, that giant, like 25, 30 screen, uh, uh, AMC theater is where so many movies are tested and also up in Los Angeles. And then sometimes they do them on the lot. I happen to know that Dr. Strange had some, uh, screenings that were on the lot and a couple of my friends tried to get in, but couldn't make their way in, didn't make the cut. Not everyone who waits in line and who gets the special notification, uh, you know, gets let in. Godzilla, the original, the 2014 Godzilla was tested at the, at the block. You always get these, um, if you go shopping there, there's a guy with the clipboard and he says, Hey, do you want to see a superhero movie? Do you want to see a sci-fi movie? Um, here, here, here's the flyer. Come back on this date. We're screening it on this date. And if you're in the industry or if they recognize you, and I have been pulled out of line before. There was a movie I wanted to see very badly, but they said, nope, not you. You are uh, somebody in the business. We recognize you. And so some of my friends are running into the same. Now, again, that was 20 years ago. I haven't tried to attend these since, but they are very eager to point you out and pull you out. But again, my friends are trying to go see and get inside these Doctor Strange screenings. And if you follow certain hashtags and you guys are way smarter and way more acclimated than I am, you guys can can see when people come out of these screenings, they hashtag, they they blow secrets. I, there was one element, the after the the Ferris Bueller uh, after credit, the post scene, they had not added onto many, many prints, but they did it on one. 
where Deadpool in his Ferris Bueller robe says, and next time we're bringing Cable. And I knew that that would completely thrill people and excite them. Well, I knew it because I followed the hashtags on the one screen that they put it on because people can't help themselves. They, they, they take that risk of getting a Twitter account with a different handle or whatever and trying to tell you what they've seen. Well, there is some legit news, and I know from friends who have seen it, about Doctor Strange 2, some stuff that has been filmed. And uh, some of it I, I know is so important to the movie, it's likely going to stay in the movie. Why are they doing this? You guys, what drove Spider-Man into the extra stratosphere was those that Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, more than cameos, right? Huge third act guest stars. Big element of, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm seeing this. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm seeing this really goes a long way. So again, what does this have to do with Doctor Strange? Okay, so they've got cameos. They've got some fun bits, some elements in the Super Bowl commercial. Patrick Stewart's voice and a glimpse of a bald head is speaking, directed at Doctor Strange. It, it appears that the Professor exec, uh, Professor Charles Xavier, Professor X from the Fox films is making his way into this. They're not hiding this anymore. They're showing it to you. But what aren't they showing you? Well, probably count on a lot. And, and they're keeping it be as best under wraps as they can. Andrew Garfield flat out lied to 60 Minutes and every outlet that interviewed him when he was promoting Tick, Tick, Boom, which came out about three weeks before Spider-Man. Just, I'm not Spider-Man. I haven't been playing Spider-Man in years. I haven't played Spider-Man. I, I am not in Spider-Man. He would flat out deny because that was his job. He was told he had to lie. He had to conceal the secret. The secret was everything. Spider-Man, again, has exceeded right now the most bullish projections of literally almost two months ago, it has gone a hundred million past projections and is and and there's no stopping it in sight. It's gonna continue. You don't think the new successor, Bob Iger, the guy who took Bob Iger's job, Bob Chapik, wants to um compete with Sony? He does. They're ruthlessly competitive. Tom Rothman was at Fox. His really big, you know, kind of signature move in my mind was delaying the shooting of Deadpool for five years. He would not get a, it the green light once he was removed and left Fox and the new president was installed. They gave Deadpool the green light, but he then landed over at Sony. And I think he's learned a lot from his mistakes. He understands now better than he did 20 years ago when he was making the first X-Men and the second X-Men movies. He understands the power of the Marvel brand. That's why you're getting a Craven movie. That's why you're getting more Venom. That's why you're getting... Uh, Madam Web, that's why you're likely going, I mean, live action Miles Morales, uh, I, I, it has not been announced, but it does not take a giant leap uh, uh, in your mind to imagine that that is probably something that they're going to be announcing very quickly, especially given that it's going to come on the heels of the sequel to Into the Spider-Verse, which, uh, you know, again, is now going to have Spider-Man 2099. That is a deep, deep bench with a Marvel character, and this is where we're going to segue into the Brady Bunch of everything. When I was a kid, easily my favorite episode of the Brady Bunch, besides the Hawaii episodes, which just riveted me. But this is before the Hawaii episodes. And again, I'm six and seven when these are coming out. The show went off the air in 1974 when I was seven. But it was a regular viewing on our house, and then it lived on in repeats forever and ever and ever. But in the third season of the Brady Bunch, uh, there is an episode called My Fair Opponent. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. It's one of my... It's a classic. It is when Marsha, the pretty, you know, the very 
pretty, very attractive, very accomplished, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brady takes a girl named Molly, who they describe as, you know, um, plain and, and, uh, she, 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 they don't call her a nerd, but Peter at one point says, oh, the only way you can fix her is, you know, putting a bag on her head. He, he's, he's, he's very cruel. Peter was, was not the nicest, uh, was nice, not the nicest guy around, um, you know, uh, at the end, that that entire season. But my fair opponent, my fair opponent aired in 1972. It was the second to the last episode of the third season. Marsha takes Molly under her wing and decides because a cruel joke joke is being made on Molly. Molly was picked by people to kind of set her up uh, to compete in a contest that she would most certainly lose. And (laughs) so, uh, so the thing is that that she takes uh, Marcia t- decides that rather than to see these mean kids who who nominated Molly in order to humiliate her, because again, as they describe her as as very plain and uh, not as attractive, uh, she decides to counteract the mean trick that they did by, by, by nominating Molly Weber. Okay. As, as, uh, to, to, to compete, uh, for the hostess of, of their, uh, of, of their, their upcoming dance. And there's going to be an astronaut there. Okay. And, uh, they, that she is so upset with her class that Marsha decides I'm going to take Molly under my wing and I am going to help her and transform her. And of course, when we see, finally, we, we, we meet Molly, she, uh, and again, this is all based on Pygmalion, My Fair Lady, um, which is why this is called My Fair Opponent. Uh, she will, you know, uh, uh, that she, she's going to transform Molly. And of course, Peter is like the only way to transform her is put a bag on her head. So he's, he's mean and he's, he's, uh, he's a dork. Marsha brings Molly home. The entire family is able to see Molly. We see Molly with her hair pulled back and her glasses. They're doing the best it's 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 Molly in her Clark in her Clark Kent stage, and, she, and 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 the actress is very much, you know, playing her as like an old lady. Okay, well, Marcia proposes that they make her over. Marcia then uh, suggests that Molly get contact lenses instead of in, instead of glasses, and then we see this montage. She she does Molly's hair. She buys Molly fashionable clothes to show off her figure. Um, she, she gives her a, a lesson in posture, has her walk across the room with books on her head to, to fix her posture. She gives her greater fashion sense. In short, Marsha transforms Molly into a, a, a completely different girl. She's, she's wearing her very fashionable, you know, seventies clothes. She has a different haircut. When she comes over to see Marsha the next day after the transformation, the kids who saw Molly in her nerd version with her glasses and her hair pulled back and her very plain clothes are shocked that it's the same girl. They're like, who are you? And she's like, I'm Molly. And they're like, wait, what? So the new improved Molly, you know, is now introduced to the school. And uh, she is extremely well received. As Marsha goes up to meet Molly, Molly is socializing with other girls. And there was another competitor that was going to compete with Molly, which is why the joke was, that's why they put this kind of plain nerdy girl up against 
uh, th this other uh, competitor to humiliate Molly because these are the story of like mean kids. And the, uh, the woman who was going to compete against her has to drop out. Well, Marsha has been designated as the, uh, as, as the alternate, the alternate competitor. And Marsha decides I'm not going to compete against Molly. That would be, you know, terrible. Marsha also takes, goes to the great pleasure of writing Molly's speech writing Molly's speech for the competition to compete for hostess of this giant dance. And if a little of this sounds like what they did later in Carrie, it's the same thing. It's always humiliating the nerd, elevating them so they can, you know, do some trick that, that humiliates the girl. Again, this is, this is, and, and Marsha, upon learning of this dirty intentions, this mean intentions, decides to go about transforming Molly to counteract all of this. So of course, Marsha can't compete against Molly. She doesn't want to. She's first runner up after the other girl has to drop out for various reasons. And Marsha's informed of this and she's like, you know, in typical Brady Bunch fashion, oh no, I can't compete against Molly. So Marsha is going up to Molly and saying, hey, I'm the alternate, but I'm going to drop out. Now, Molly, again, in her cool little mod mini dress is talking to the other girls and they're welcoming her. They're not, she's no longer on the outside. Molly's been transformed and, uh, Marsha informs her that, uh, she's too busy to compete for the honor of hostess and, uh, will be withdrawing from the race entirely. Molly, who has, we now see in this scene has become quite arrogant as a result of her transformation and her welcoming amongst the cool kids. Molly says, well, that's too bad. It, I'm sure it would have been a close race. And Marsha's like, wait, what do you mean a close race? I like, like, Marsha is incensed. Now again, Marsha, in in addition to transforming her physically, her hair, her outfit, her posture, her attitude, she wrote her, she wrote Molly's speech. Remember this. Again, Marsha is super smart and pretty and, you know, that's young boys. We all loved Marsha. We thought she was so cute and effervescent and charismatic. Well, so for Molly to remind like, hey, too, too bad you're not going to compete with me. It would have been a close race. Marsha is miffed at Molly's remark, okay? And Molly, not even acknowledging Marsha's contribution into transforming her, has really triggered Mar uh, Marsha. So um, then Molly uh, tells Marsha, like, I've arrived. She uses those words. I've arrived. I'm going to use this in a minute with Spider-Man and the Tom Holland and the, and the Marvel trance. Cause I hope you see where I'm going with all this. Okay. Just, just right now, I'll give you a hint, make Marsha, Kevin Feige and Molly, you know, the Sony Spider-Man. So when Molly states to Marsha that she's arrived, Marsha decides, okay, you're on. Uh, Cause Molly goes, it's just, it's just, you know, that if you thought a chance of, if you thought you had a chance of beating me, she tells Marsha, you wouldn't be too busy and have to drop out. Well, Marsha gets upset. She's triggered. And she says, I'm going to, I'm going to compete. And so this sets up when the two of them, uh, you know, are going to compete in front of the judges. And, uh, we have now seen that Molly is absolutely as she's portraying herself. She is not grateful. She is not appreciative. She barely recognizes what Marsha did for her. And the bottom line is Marsha loses due to the speech. The judges say Molly's speech is what pushed her over the edge and gave her the win. Okay. We know because we watched and Molly knows it's because Marsha wrote that speech. They basically said it was, it came down to the speeches and Marsha 
could not completely compete with the brilliant speech she wrote to transform Molly. Okay? The story of Molly and Marsha. Well, at the end, uh, Molly shows up on Marsha's doorstep with the astronaut to inform her uh, with some exciting news that they are going to be co-hostesses of the dance so that they will both get to dance with the, han- with the handsome and accomplished uh, astronaut and, uh, and Molly apologizes for her bad behavior. Okay, so that's how that all wraps up. Now, here's the deal. In this scenario, why I see it, it, it's Marvel's Marsha problem. <laughs> okay, Marvel came in, they did their job. They, they completely transformed Spider-Man and, and gave him the facelift to the point where it is now, you know, in the upper echelons of the top earners of all time and has given Sony complete, you know, uh, uh, fever to compete even harder. The Mobius movie is coming out. I love Mobius. I'm excited. I think what Jared Leto uh, has accomplished, what he looks like, the film looks amazing. Again, they are planning on more Venom, you know, more into the Spider-Verse. Marvel, uh, Spider-Man 2099 is coming. Kraven is filming. Sony has their eyes on competing with everyone. That includes Disney. Well, Disney, Bob Chappick, where's my giant billion dollar, you know, the eternal slightly disappointing Shang-Chi well-liked, but nowhere near the earnings stratosphere. Black Widow, you know, uh, even had a lawsuit by Scarlett Johansson. So come on, you know, I'm not sure that you could put Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi and the Eternals together and get the box office of Spider-Man, but don't test me on that. I don't have those numbers in front of me. That's just my off the top of my head. Doctor Strange into the in, into the, the 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 multiverse of madness. Is that it? The multiverse of madness in the multiverse of mad in the multiverse of madness coming out May six. It's upon us, guys. They're testing this. They're reshooting this. They're re-editing this. They're they're you know what's going to be the end credits? Have they already shot them? Let me suggest something. Again. Kevin Feige, his boss is Bob Chappick, just like his boss was Bob Iger. They run all of Disney. Bob Chappick is on the earnings call. He talks to Wall Street. He's there at the park at the Disneyland, Disney World, for the openings of their new attractions. He's there not just for the movies. He's there for the streaming. He's there for the parks, the cruises, all of the Disney empire. And he he is the boss of all, including Kevin Feige. Kevin Feige was purchased by Disney to continue on this winning streak. They've expanded his influence his reach so bob chapik wants a giant billion dollar movie well how do you get there you get there with all this rumored stuff is tom cruise in the movie is 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 mr fantastic in the movie we now know pretty much based on the super bowl ad that the illuminati is definitely in the movie but how much are they in the movie are they in the movie for 90 seconds two minutes five minutes 30 minutes we'll all find out in may 6 how many of the fox characters are following professor xavier into this movie you know Here's what I'm going to tell you. Remember, we live in a world where almost all of Solo was reshot. There was only a few weeks left per Lord Miller, multiple interviews. They had shot an entirely different movie. Many of the cast had changed. They let, they fired Lord and Miller. It was brutal. And announced that they would be hiring Ron Howard to do a complete reshoot of a movie that had been shooting for three months. We are never seeing that Solo movie. Just like Rogue One. Rogue One went through six, seven, eight weeks, maybe more. That's what we're supposed to believe of reshoots. You guys have seen 
the uh, the commercials, the original trailers for Rogue One, and it had an absolutely different, <clears throat> um, you know, it had an absolutely different. Th- there are many different scenes in that trailer. Okay, Gareth Edwards' film was a risky experiment for Disney, but they employed Tony Gilroy to fix the film, write new dialogue, direct additional scenes, except there are people who say that he did way much, so much more than that. And when you can literally have almost an entire trailer of footage that is not in the final Rogue One, Tony Gilroy likely did much more than just a few reshoots. It it felt like it was a complete overhaul. There have been endless, uh, uh, you know, summaries of exactly what happened. Gareth Edwards, I think, was wise to comply. We don't know how much of that movie is him and how much is Tony Gilroy. But we do know that uh, that it was a compromise, that Disney, did Lucasfilm, was not thrilled with what they, uh, they, they had seen and they felt like they wanted to go in a different direction and they did. And we are never seeing the pure Gareth Edwards film. It's just, it's just not likely to happen. Tony Gilroy wrote and directed, uh, Michael Clayton, brilliant movie, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant movie starring the esteemed George Clooney. It, it is just a fantastic film on every level. He is an accomplished filmmaker. He was brought in for a very specific reason. And that was to, you know, to, uh, to, to, to spruce up, fix, save, whatever. Um, you know, the, 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 the film that was Rogue One. And again, if you just go and look at those early, it's something my friends and I always talk about. We always get together and we chat about how uh, incredibly, uh, you know, in, in, in incredibly uh, different the trailers are, the early trailers, and how they don't reflect um, so much of what we were promised. And, and I mean, they, they uh, drastically, drastically changed uh, so much. But again, Tony Gilroy, really a name you don't hear. It's on the tip of your, your tongue, but he's a fixer. He's seen as a fixer in town. Great script doctor, great script writer. Again, Michael Clayton, great legal thriller, brilliant. He was brought in. He rehauled Rogue One. Ron Howard did a complete reshoot of Solo. They only had a few weeks left. Depending on what you read, 80 to 90% of Solo was in the can. There is an entire Solo movie. There is probably 80% of a Rogue One that we are not seeing. So is it possible? Can we believe? I've already told you there are giant scenes that I saw shot on the set of Deadpool 2 that did not make it in. That did not make it into the final Deadpool 2. They added, changed, realigned. Make sure that you know for certain that they are doing this with Dr. Strange. Kevin Feige was Marsha. He went into Sony. He did his job. He improved their fashion, gave them new style, did exactly what Marsha did for Molly. Transformed Molly, took the, took, took the challenge, <clears throat> transformed Molly. Suddenly, Molly is a competitor. Molly actually ends up winning in the Brady Bunch episode and then comes by to say, I'm sorry I acted badly. So in this instance, is is Sony 
and the new outlook on Spider-Man winning. I am telling you right now, if they made a third Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movie, it is a billion dollars in the bank. Uh, a likelihood that was not even possible or or even, you know, feasible to Sony a year ago is now like, should we do this? Should we go ahead and do this? What if, as so many people have surmised, and it's possible, that it's Andrew Garfield Spider-Man that goes against Tom Hardy's Venom? What if Miles Morales is teaming up with Andrew Garfield? The parameters are different. I'm not sure what the structure is. Marvel would have to step in and finance that to get any portion of it whatsoever. Even if they are giving, you know, 50 million, 100 million to Marvel, they are now in a stratosphere. This is Sony's most successful movie ever, not just most successful Spider-Man movie. It is their most successful movie ever. And when that happens, you better believe they're going to ramp up. They're going to create more, which means they're going to compete with Marvel. One of the reasons that Marvel did not like Fox is Fox was putting out three to four X-Men movies every year, and they absolutely competed with time slots. Deadpool 2 opened two weeks after Endgame. That, 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 I'm sorry, Deadpool 2 opened two weeks after Infinity War. It It is believed that the... 300 plus million dollars domestic and whatever Deadpool made worldwide ate into potential dollars of people who would have been still been going to re-see Infinity War but now pivoted to yet another Marvel brand. You're going to see the same maybe two-week, three-week window with Sony and Marvel at some point. They just can't get out of each other's way. And in Marvel's case, as Marsha, Peggy, as Marsha, he spruced up Molly, Sony's Molly. Made them fashionable. Taught them how to strut better posture. Molly wins the contest. Marsha doesn't. Marsha made Molly. Molly, she even says, I made her into a monster. Okay? Well, I am proposing that Marvel has created a much more competitive animal in Sony all around. Because they don't get anything from Venom. They don't co-finance that. They don't get money from Venom. They, 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 Marvel has to step as a, as a producing partner and alleviate some of the production cost to get some of the participation of the profits. Craven, Sony going it alone. Venom, Sony going it al alone. Uh, Madam Web, Sony going it alone. Mobius, Sony going it alone. Again, just like the Fox films, it has the Marvel logo but it is now Sony Productions. The only stuff that Marvel has actually produced is anything involving Tom Holland. So, Doctor Strange, does it have pressure? Yes. What could make it blow up? What are they thinking? What after credit scene could possibly pivot towards other franchises, maybe help set up other adventures of characters we have not yet seen, or maybe we have not yet seen interact with the MCU at large. There's all sorts of possibilities. There's all manner of choices. But the reason they are testing it and reshooting it and testing it and re-editing it is because they desperately want, Bob Chappick wants his billion dollar success. He does not want to tell the shareholders, well, yeah, I know. We, we, we really helped that Spider-Man movie, um, you know, prop up the success of our competitors at Sony but yeah, for us, we're just, we're just, we're settling for these lesser grossing films. No, they want the biggest, boldest, most uh, successful movies. They, they do not want, uh, you know, just a straight sequel to Doctor Strange because Doctor Strange on its own, as you know, 
was not in the upper earnings, the upper earners of Marvel. Oh, Lightfields are always making this about earnings. No, I'm telling you how it has already been made. I'm watching it. I'm just observing it. And this is how people think and how they plan and how they move everything forward in this world. And it is solely based on earnings and on uh, box office, worldwide grosses, future profits. Because Disney is a giant machine. The, the, the investors have to be fed. Wall Street has to be adhered to. And you don't want to be in a position where you spruced up your competition to the point that you can't keep up with them. Again, Marsha and Molly. The Brady Bunch episode that has lived with me my entire life is what I am proposing we are seeing in terms of Doctor Strange and the Sony. Now, again, there's a bridge. There's a connection. Maybe Tom Holland swings through. Maybe we get Spider-Man in, 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 in Doctor Strange. Maybe we get other Fox characters. No one knows, but you better believe that if it was just a straight Benedict Cumberbatch starring Doctor Strange movie, there's an, there's a cap on that number. There's a hard cap without the bells, the whistles, the secret cameos, maybe the Fox catalog coming in, setting up new stuff without any of that. It's a straight sequel to the very, I love Doctor Strange. It's one of my top 10 Marvel films. Yes, it is. I, I, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was extremely well made. I'm very much looking forward to Doctor Strange, but the audience for that movie is not the audience that drove Spider-Man No Way Home. So whatever they're doing, whatever they're shooting, whatever makes it into the final cut, because not everything will. What I should absolutely say with great conviction is not everything that Doctor Strange in the... Come on, help me out again. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I keep I keep having to, to refer to this. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. There's Into the Spider-Verse, which I've called Into the Multiverse tonight. In Into the Spider-Verse, In the Multiverse of Madness has big shoes to fill, competitive shoes. Marvel wants to be out there. Disney wants to be out there saying we can compete. We, it, we don't just pretty up the competition and take a $100 million fee, okay? We can drive our own billions, just like we do with Endgame and with Captain Marvel, with Infinity War. Uh, you know, Marvel and Disney are looking for their big giant hit. Doctor Strange is their best at bat. It is their absolute best at bat. Spider-Man No Way Home opened up the possibilities of the multiverse. Now Doctor Strange is going to have to deliver on them. And that is the challenge because Bob Chappick wants his Robert Iger success. And that is all there is. What's going to be reshot and seen? What's going to be reshot and left on the editing room floor due to whatever decision that Deadpool scene that I told you with Black Tom was for me more satisfying than what they did, the quick the quick shot in the head while Black Tom is defenseless in the case? That's not how it was when I was there, but they changed it. They altered it. They took his minutes away and gave them to the domino cable battle, expanded the cable Deadpool battle. Again, I've seen this. I've seen this firsthand. We have entire movies we've never seen. An, an entire solo film by the guys who have everything they touch is successful into the Spider-Verse, um, the, the, the 21 jump street films, um, all of the TV, all of the success, uh, that, that the, the Lord and Miller brand has, has, has created that is buried in a vault somewhere in a movie we have never seen. They shot 90%, 85% of solo. Okay. And it was by all accounts, completely different. So what are we going to see? That has been shot in Doctor Strange 2. What has already been, you know, edited out, gone in a different direction, changed, pivoted. We don't know. 
What we know is it represents a giant challenge. Marvel and Disney want, need their giant billion dollar follow-up to Spider-Man No Way Home. This is Marsha and Molly. This is the Brady Bunch. This is my fair opponent all over again. They prettied up their opponent, taught them how to be marvelous, okay? And now they have to live in the world that they created and compete with uh, kind of the, 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 the rules of engagement that they established. Wow, there it is. That's it. That is part one of today's multi-double whammy pop observations. That is Doctor Strange's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness big challenge. What are we going to see? How is it going to play out? Are they continuing to test it? What are they adding, taking away? It's going to be extremely exciting to, to see how this um, all shakes out. I hope you followed everything I put on the table. I put, I gave you facts. I gave you figures. I gave you the receipts. I, I, I showed you how things are seen. Again, the, the new big boss wants his own drums to beat. This is a competitive business. These guys compete. And speaking of competing, in the next section that you're going to hear right after this ends is all about how I think comics and sports are closer than you think. And, 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 and I'm not alone. So many people do think that there is such a strong connective tissue between the competitive nature of comic books and sports. And that is up right on the other end of the little jingle that you're going to hear that leads us into part two of today's observations. Hey everyone, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to another edition of Observations. An exciting show awaits you today. Following the, the, the Super Bowl. This was a giant Super Bowl weekend. People love the Super Bowl. People always gather around the Super Bowl. They say 100 million people watch the Super Bowl worldwide. I read this morning 37 million uh, people in the United States watched it. It was up 12% from the year before. Somebody like myself who gets to go to his uh, hometown arena to watch his hometown team play in the Super Bowl uh, makes it e- even better. Uh, the Rams have been my, my, my team since I was 11 years old. Vince Ferragamo, the, the, the Rams losing to the, the Steelers, Bradshaw, all of it. Followed him for years, got season tickets. Uh, some of you may not know, but when I was at Extreme Studios, our uh, building and everybody, all the 60 plus employees that, that, that worked at that building on Catella, which was also used as an alien planet, the name of Catella and Catellans, uh, we would overlook uh, Anaheim Stadium, which was the host to both the Rams and the Angels at the time. It was called Anaheim Stadium. I've never kind of shook that. I know like different arenas change over time, but it's going to be hard to get used to calling something like Staples Center Crypto.com Arena when it was Staples Center to me. And it kind of always will be because all my favorite memories happened there. Anaheim Stadium, if we would, if we were one floor higher, we would have been able to see further into this, into Anaheim Stadium, but we were. There's a giant, beautiful uh, two towers that look uh, over into the lot of Anaheim Stadium, and uh, so so Angels games, Dodger games, not not great view, but ha- uh, one floor higher had it made. And when we would go on the roof of the uh, building there in Catella, which I think it was 15 stories, and throw uh, giant styrofoam paper airplanes off the roof that would, would, would carry over. And one time I did not 
throw this particular giant styrofoam like three feet airplane, but it landed on the freeway because the 57 freeway, uh, Santa Ana freeway is, is literally a block from the building, the streets right in front of us. Crazy times. We would look into the Anaheim stadium is what I'm trying to tell you. And, uh, I had season tickets to the Rams with the first money that I gained, uh, earned professionally. I bought, uh, two tickets, uh, and, and tried to improve every year when Danny Mickey was hired as an anchor uh, by myself early in late, late 92 to ink Youngblood. I rewarded him. Uh, I, I not rewarded him. I just offered him. I said, hey, would you like tickets to go see the, the Rams? Because I know he's a 49er fan and he took them and I had bought extra tickets. And so I actually saw him uh, walking around the grounds of Anaheim Stadium during that very game. I mean, it was a big deal to be for me to be a Rams fan, big enough that when I asked them about sponsorship opportunities, they said, "Well, our cheerleading team needs uh, sponsorship." Um, and and so for two years, Extreme Studios, Little Bad Rock, uh, and a drawing that I did, and the logo Extreme Studios was on the back of all of the Rams cheerleader paraphernalia, the calendar, and their individual cards that they got uh, printed up, and we <laughs> ended up hiring. Four, four uh, outstanding uh, cheerleaders from the Rams squad in like 92, 93, 94. And they were some of the sweetest girls. My wife will tell you this um, way more than just cheerleaders. You you just have no idea how, how the, 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 these girls were going to school. They were getting their degrees. They were all brilliant minds. and uh, But they happened to enjoy uh, being cheerleaders for the big NFL team, big NFL home team. So... Long story short, my love affair with the Rams has been many decades. And when they finally won yesterday, I did not know my wife was taking a series of videos and live shots on her uh, on, on her camera on the live setting and caught me screaming my guts out uh, when the victory was secure. And you could see, and I told her, that is 44 years of a Orange County, Southern California, Los Angeles Rams fan coming out the frustration being released as we uh, won the Rams, won their first Super Bowl. And look, man, if your team was Cincinnati, I underestimated your defense. You guys were a great team. Uh, we just put together a heck of a uh, a drive um, and, and, and were able to then defensively stop the Bengals. It was exciting. People t- have told me who watched it in the last 24 hours how exciting it was. It was exciting being there. I have been to a number of uh, games at SoFi Stadium but at the at the end of the day, that that's that stadium is next level, uh, just in in terms of its uh, design, its execution, uh, it's it's literally futuristic. As my son said, it look it, it feels like you're going into a spaceship, and and I would ag- agree. If if the Death Star had a, a football floor, uh, this would be it. it. It's just phenomenal. It's 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 so futuristic. But why am I talking about football? Look. Not only was there a Super Bowl, the Super Bowl's a big show, right? You got a big show, you got a big halftime show. All the West Coast uh, hip-hop guys showed up and girls, Mary J. Blige, and, 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 and rocked our socks off. It was a great reminder of Southern California. But other than that, be, of, beyond, above, above and beyond all of that, I am telling you that sports and comics are closer in my mind than you could ever possibly imagine. I truly believe this. Um, I've always believed this. I've run my entire career as if it was a uh, s- some sort of sports endeavor because 
I, I, I really believe in the competition. And as I was watching this game and the narratives uh, uh, shifting and changing and one team back on defense, one on offense, who's going to hoist the trophy, who's going to be the MVP, get the special accolades, who's going to Disneyland. We all know the trip, whether it's your team, my team, somebody else's team. Again, most people, if they watch one sporting event a year, uh, we have been, you know, in, we have been told and informed that it is in fact, you know, the Super Bowl. So uh, the, 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 the long and the short of it is, as I've talked to my friends, the, the, the friends that I uh, am closest with, we always talk as if comics and sports are, are very much inter- interchangeable. And, and I'm going to tell you today <clears throat> all the reasons why I think that is. This is actually some of my uh, favorite, most lively um, discussions. And, and I hope that this makes for a really fun episode. I, I, I have like heard this episode in my head as I have, as I have worked this out and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, I, I really, really am, am excited to, to, to share with you guys what, what I believe to be the, 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 the common denominator and, and the, the connecting fiber between the approach of comic books and sports. And I, I again, I, I could not believe this more then I am doing an entire podcast about it, which I am absolutely doing an entire podcast about it. But uh, hopefully hang with me. I'm, you're going to discover some decisions I made along the way. Why I made certain decisions that I made in my publishing career, in my artistic career, in my writing career, and they all have to do with competitive impulses, competitive situations, viewing comics as competitive uh, as I do and learning very much so that I am far from alone. This is not something, regardless of what you're going to hear from other sources, I'm, I'm going to share one of those kind of other sources with you uh, that that states very clearly, you know, that, 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 there's, 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 a, there's a, how do I say this? There's a, uh, a, a section of people who uh, believe that comic books aren't competitive, of which I am going to tell you. I'm going to read this statement, and then I'm going to tell you how much horseshit I think is full is 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 uh, is contained in this statement. So, so comics and sports. I'm going to, I'm going to spend an an hour telling you why I think they're so connected, why I have always viewed them as connected, why I think Todd McFarlane and and so many others like me think they're connected. But I'm going to read. This was pat. This was being passed along. This was being passed along over social media late last week, all through the weekend, okay? And it says, artists are not like athletes. We cannot win gold. We cannot beat other creatives. We cannot come first. Sport is objective. Our craft is subjective. Creating to be the best is a waste of energy. Instead, create to connect to the people who need you because they're out there creating your way because there is no right way. Take the pressure off and focus on your unique brand of magic. So that's the statement, okay? If you need to re-listen to it, rewind, replay it back. First sentence, artists are not like athletes. We cannot win gold. We cannot beat other creatives. Okay, that's bullshit. Everything else in here, I I actually 100% agree with. Create because you need to. Create the way you want to. But by saying that it isn't competitive is utter nonsense. Now, see, I can draw something tonight as a hundred thousand or more other artists do, 
and show it to you on social media. I can put it on my Instagram. I can put it on my Facebook. I can put it on my Twitter. Okay. And you can see it. And that's like hanging art in a gallery. Okay. And I agree in a gallery, there's no winners or losers. Well, in the, in, in this particular idea of a gallery that I'm assembling, you put the art up, you know, you hang the art up and, uh, and, and, and there's no real, uh, you know, no real winner or loser, right? Well, that's the idea. Okay. That, that, that is certainly the idea, but I'm telling you that, that other than sharing your work on a gallery in a gallery, the very nature of comic books is competitive. The very nature. I'm looking at all the people who shared this post. You know, art is not competitive, which is, is all, that's all I'm saying. Art is not competitive. That, that's what that reads like to me. We're not athletes. We don't win gold. We can't beat other creators. We can't come first. Our objective uh, is subjective. Creating to be the best is a waste of energy. Well, someone forgot to tell all the major publishers and all the major people who release films and all the major musicians that this isn't competitive and that it's just about expressions. No, that's not true. And this is where I circle back to sports, okay? Uh, look, the guy's name was Pat Croce. He was, I, I know, that I, I think there's a Croce that is, uh, that, that, that is a musician, but trust me when I am telling you that Pat Croce uh, was the uh, president, at, at one point, owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, team president. He was team president, okay? And during that period, I sat right next to him at the most competitive game, one of the most competitive, at the, certainly at the time, the most competitive game I'd ever sat at. And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle this situation into how we treat our favorite artists and athletes. It's interchangeable. We've And, and I'm, so I'm going to go right from this into another, and you're going to see the connective tissue. 2001, the playoffs, the NBA playoffs. The Lakers won the 2000 playoffs. It was now time to issue the, the challenge to repeat. Phil Jackson, Kobe, Shaq, everyone was up for it. So the 2001 playoffs are upon us. At the time, I am, I am in business with Will Smith. I am not name dropping. I am telling you how I possibly got six row behind the Philadelphia 76ers bench at game one of the NBA finals in Los Angeles at Staples Center. Will Smith called me up knowing how much I loved the Lakers and said, hey man, I got extra tickets. Would you like to sit behind the Sixers bench? I'm going to be on the floor with my buddy. Will says to me, but you can have these tickets. I said, I'll take them. I'll take them. I'll, I'm, I'm there. So this, this was 24 hours before the game. Yeah, I always figure. I don't know who said no. I don't know who said they didn't want to go, but I'm happy to pick up those crumbs. So I went to the will call, I got my ticket, I, w I walked inside, and lo and behold, not only my six rows behind the Philadelphia 76ers, the, Phil the Philadelphia 76ers of uh, Allen Iverson, crazy, awesome Allen Iverson. I have nothing but respect and fear for Allen Iverson's gifts. He was peak in peak form, shooting, passing, uh, just pure scorer, Amazing point guard, one of the best that ever was. Had he won, and we'll get back into that, he'd be immortalized in a different sense. But for the people who are basketball fans at the time, he and, and knew their stuff and know the NBA, he was a legit, crazy level athlete scorer. I mean, I mean, 
I, I cannot express to you enough how dangerous a weapon. He had gotten them all the way there. The, the Sixers defeated Toronto. They, they defeated every obstacle in their path to get to the NBA Finals. The Lakers had the best record. We're opening game one. This is a big deal. NBA Finals. I'd been to the previous year's NBA Finals. That Those Kobe Shaq years, I was, get, I was just fortunate. I had family members. I had connections. People were offering me tickets all the time because they knew I was a, Lake, a Lakers crazy fan. But I am seated in the sixth row to the president of operations, Pat Croce. Pat Croce is a very big personality. He had done a lot of media appearances. He had been on a lot of the countdown shows, the NBA commentary shows. Uh, when he left being the president of the 76ers and withdrew his uh, partial partial investment in the team, he went straight to TV and was a talking head, one of the you know uh, commentators and in-studio personalities for many years. I immediately on site, see him. Oh my gosh, I'm sitting next to him. How uncomfortable is this? I'm going to root against his team the entire time. Here's what you need to know about the 2001 NBA uh, playoffs. The Lakers had not won a game. They swept Portland. They swept Sacramento. And they swept San Antonio. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. They were juggernauts. They were absolute juggernauts. Had not experienced a loss in the postseason. And here we are against the 76ers, who I admired, but did not hold in the same uh, level of fear as I did the Chris Weber, Sacramento Kings, the Tim Duncan, San Antonio Spurs, or the Rashid Wallace, Scottie Pippen, Portland Trailblazers rematch from the finals the year before. But we did it. Portland, boom, gone. Sacramento, boom, gone. San Antonio, boom, gone. And here we were. And I thought, we're going we're gonna to eat the Sixers for lunch. Well, long story short, Allen Iverson is just goes bonkers crazy, will not be defeated by Shaq, nor Kobe, nor Robert Horry, nor Rick Fox, Derek Fisher, our entire amazing, talented team. He sends the game to overtime, and then they, they beat us. And so game one of the 76ers goes, I mean, game one of the NBA Finals goes to the NBA Sixers. The Lakers are handed their first loss of the NBA postseason, the NBA finals. Oh my gosh. And I'm sitting next to the president. And when it goes to overtime, I'm like, crap, I can't believe we're going to overtime. I'm, you know, the Lakers were invincible. No one, we haven't known loss in two months because the playoffs, man, they spread that, they spread that off. I mean, the Lakers had not known a loss, not in, not in April when it started, not in May. And now here we are in June and we have just, we're about to lose it. We're going, we're going to overtime. Things are sketchy. And I, it did not stop me from rooting against the 76ers, giving my boo. I didn't curse. I didn't curse in the stands, but it's generally a very bad idea. I don't do that. Um, maybe at the Super Bowl, I curse a little, forgive me. Um, but, but the bottom line is I'm just rooting. I'm clapping. I, I, what I mainly do is I just cheer for my team. If they do something good, they hit a bucket, they get an assist, they get a rebound, they get a, 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 a deflection, they play great D. Yeah, Lakers, yeah. I'm just kind of toning it down because if I did it full, full volume, it would break your devices, whatever you're listening to this on. But when it was over, I turned to the president of the 76ers, Pat Croce, and I reached out my hand and I said, sir, you have a hell of a team. Congratulations. You beat us and uh, nothing but respect to you. Good luck the rest of the way. He said, hey, good luck to you. You got a great team. And uh, we went our separate ways. Staples to Orange County, about a 45-minute drive, 
totally depressed. Now I'm completely spiraling. Oh my gosh, what's wrong? Are we really going to lose to the 76ers? Well, next game, we beat them. Game two, we beat them. Game three, we beat them. Game four, crucial. You know, now we're in Philadelphia. Game three, four, and five, the, the, the finals at that point was games one and two and six and seven. If you get that far, are at the Lakers home court. And then the middle games are all in the the the, the challengers city. So the Lakers won game two, flew to Philadelphia, won game three, won in 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 game four. I'm in Mexico, not vacationing. We go down with my church group, and for successive years, we were building homes for families that did not have one. We work with an organization, raise the money, but we would um and when we go. And I mean, these are these are these are single story homes, uh, three bedrooms. We 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 managed to by this time we could knock out six houses in a weekend, and it's a crew of about 20, 25 of us, and and there the concrete's been poured, all the wood and all the materials are there, and we just go. And these are great, durable, amazing houses, and we then it's it's pre uh, the, the 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 families actually watch us put them up, and then we. Uh, present them these homes. And it was incredibly moving. I would always get kind of teary-eyed. And uh, game four was on the way home as we were now driving from the middle of Mexico, crossing the border, back into San Diego, driving all the way back to Orange County. And, you know, the game tipped. And right before, you know, before halftime, uh, you know, we, we had almost made it to the border. So I had, I had listened to half of the game in Mexico, listening on the radio, just chewing my nails. Horace Grant gets the rebound. Oh my gosh. Out to Robert Horry. Derek Fisher drives, kicks to Kobe. I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday leaving Mexico. We, 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 uh, cause it's Sunday evening. We had been there Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and, uh, just wow. Gritting my teeth, Dikembe Mutombo was was wagging his finger, denying shots, but we beat him. We had won game two, three, four, and we ultimately survived, winning games two, three, and four, and five. So, but they got a win on us. They beat us. The point of this story is, I hated Allen Iverson during that series. I hated him. I didn't like him. I didn't care for him. I I I, I wanted the very worst scenario for him on the court, which was to lose. Maybe roll an ankle. Come on, be honest. You know, we get we get nasty. We get nasty as sports fans. And I know you guys are sports fans. When I do my signings, no matter where I go all across the country, you guys are rocking your jerseys. You're rocking your baseball teams, your football teams, your hockey teams, your NBA teams, your college teams. So many people in sports already are completely predisposed to, to you know, loving their whatever teams. Uh, my my buddy Marat started out as my assistant. We both love the Lakers, but in the NFL season, he loves the 49ers. The Niners owned the Rams all through the 80s and 90s. The Joe Montana, Steve Young Rams, the, the, the uh, Niners, the Joe Montana, Steve Young 49ers, the Rams could not get over on them. Marat would always have bragging rights, gloating. It was painful. A couple weeks ago, the two of us, our teams met in the NFC Championship. It was tight. The Rams pulled out the win. They had that great comeback. And uh, I didn't call Marat for a couple of days because I knew I felt his pain. So as this relate to comics, I felt, well, let me tell you something. In terms of competitiveness, have you ever been in the comic store? Have you ever proclaimed 
your favorite artist or writer for a particular character? Have you ever been immediately opposed, met with a groan by someone else? And if you think I'm talking about me, forget about it. I experienced this this summer with a guy arguing John Romita Sr.'s Spider-Man as being the best Spider-Man ever. And this isn't only in a store setting. You can go to Facebook any time of day. There is an entire group for the John Romita Sr. fans. And if you so much as mention that there is another artist that can compete with him in, in your memory or your, your preference isn't Ramita Sr., they will destroy you, bury you. Um, facts, figures, maybe not always emotion, you know, but they are not having it. You do not go into the Ramita Sr. group and tell anybody that you like Ditko better. Don't even get me started if you want to say, like, once you've settled the Ditko Ramita, don't even think about saying the word McFarlane. Okay, people will lose their they'll lose their minds. They will absolutely lose their minds on you. Comic stores. Okay, when I was growing up, it was Perez and Burns. Somehow they were the top dogs. It was you were a Burn guy, you were a Perez guy. In, inconceivable, right? To like both, like I did. But man, the Burn people just looked down their nose. Oh, he's so much better. He's so far superior. And here's here's what happens. Okay. And sometimes I believe that both parties were, were invested because it had reached them, even with the fanzines and the chatter at the time. Because um, to this day, John Burns still on his boards talks about how people would say that he didn't draw backgrounds. Right around the Fantastic Four, John became uh, very sparse in certain aspects of drawing backgrounds, which never bothered me. So if you if you followed my work, newsflash, don't put a great value. I don't put a great value on the backgrounds. You can put me in the Frank Miller category uh, and, and, and in the John Byrne category, although I'm, I'm not sure he would agree with it. But there would be several panels, let's say, of just no backgrounds, just the figure interaction. Maybe maybe a little smattering of a ground or maybe She-Hulk's sitting in a chair, but it's blank. Well, it's blank and it's filled up by word balloons. And at that point, you're just putting some backgrounds to give some atmosphere, I guess, for, you know, that, that's not going to be covered by three quarters of the word balloons that are going to take up 75% of that panel. So when I got into Hawk, when I got into comics and I was doing Hawk and Dove, uh, the assistant editor who I really liked, not the giant bloated asshole editor who I have referred to mainly in, in, in the Hawk and Dove uh, podcast, which I highly recommend you listen to. It is, it will, it will dictate to you the possible worst uh, situation, easily the most abusive editor relationship I ever had, <clears throat> which also gets to coaches, which we're going to segue into it here in a minute because editors and coaches are really the same thing and what they get out of you and, and the performances they bring. And so, uh, so when I was talking to my assistant editor, she said, well, generally the rule is you establish the, the, the background in the first panel and then you can leave it for a few before maybe coming back to it in like the later panel. But like if there's a three-page sequence, at least show the environment once on each page while the characters are knocking themselves into walls or whatever. Now, too many backgrounds becomes distracting and all you're looking at is backgrounds. And it's, 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 it's a case of, you know, going back and forth. Well, it wouldn't have mattered if John did backgrounds on every panel rather than the open panels that he did all over the place. And look, people are going to go, Rob burned an entire issue where there was a extended seven page scene where, where it was just white with word balloons. Cause he depicted a snowstorm. We'll never know what he was thinking when he did that, but it happened. And he has in interviews talked about how he got paid for six pages 
of a snowstorm, which means there was no lines in the paper, just the word balloons in six panel pages, but they even took the panels borders away in some instances, okay? This isn't silhouettes. This is just nothing. This It's just no drawing whatsoever. Just blank panels, okay? This is in an issue of Alpha Flight Snowbirds on the cover. Maybe it's issue six from memory. I don't know, maybe issue seven. But that probably didn't help with his reputation. But on Alpha Flight and Fantastic Four, by the way, he was writing, drawing, and inking these books, which is a different chore than what George Perez was doing. But in any George Perez book, no matter what John was doing, George was drawing more. He drew more backgrounds. He drew every crusty uh, uh, texture on the tree, on the bark, on the wood, on the branch. He drew, you know, every possible leaf, uh, every brick on every building. So George became known as the detailed guy. Well, I actually had professionals, professionals, professionals who would shock you. If I, I've never said their names, I won't say their names at this point, but three, if, 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 if we're calling them all stars, they were big names, big bronze names, talents, uh, guys who I, I absolutely adore. But on this, we just disagreed. The guy, George just puts all that stuff on the pages to distract you. From what he doesn't draw well is what I was told. Well, this wasn't just the domain and the opinion of these Bronze Age artists. This is also like what these, you know, fans are saying in the comic book wars or at the comic book shows. When I would go to comic book shows with uh, Marat, who was uh, probably 15 when I was uh, 19, 18, we would uh, go to the same shows. That's where one of the ways that I got to know Marat and his friends and his L.A. posse of of uh, fledgling artists, of which Marat was the only one that broke through. There was a couple guys. But ironically, towards the middle of the 80s, so as we segue from 83, 84, 85, the John Byrne, George Perez uh, competition had taken a new wrinkle. Not, I mean, by this time, they've both done Avengers, they've both done Fantastic Four, they've both done stories with the X-Men. Obviously, John did the epic, you know, really the defining run of the X-Men. George did one magnificent annual that everyone held in high regard. But, you know, uh, so Fantastic Four, Marvel 2-in-1, X-Men, uh, Avengers, they had both crossed over on different job seats. You could directly compare a Captain America to a Captain America, a Wolverine to a Wolverine, a Spider-Man to a Spider-Man, a thing to a thing, okay? But then they had gone off and, and George did Titans and, and, and John Byrne did, you know, the Hulk and he did Superman and, and, and George did Wonder Woman and Justice League. And so as they were expanding and, uh, and, 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 and continuing their decade of excellence, a new guy entered, a guy named Art Adams. And at this one convention in 1984, this guy named Nick would be like, oh, they're both trash compared to Art Adams. Art Adams is better than both of them. Well, that may be. Certainly, Art Adams had a profound influence on me. He hit me like a ton of bricks. It's one of my first six episodes, six, seven episodes I did about Art Adams, about establishing uh, a run and, and uh, you know, longevity and, and managing a career. It's, it's a really fun one. It gives Art all his props. It's the year that all of the delayed work that he had been doing over three years came out in one 12 months, one 12 month release schedule. So you got six long shots and two annuals and ultimately hundreds of pages of Art Adams, never to be repeated again. But that one magnificent year, that one run made such an impact. But, and then obviously from that on, from then on, he did covers and pinups and illustrations and people went apeshit for, for, for Art Adams work. I know I did. I, I, I still do. That era flips me out every time I see it. 
and is my favorite period of Art Adams is that kind of 1984-1986 era that he did. And this guy Nick's like, ah, Bernard Perez can't hold a candle. Even though, again, they are producing much more work, the Art Adams fan had stated unequivocally that, that Art was the superior one. And by somehow elevating Art, he thought he could he could elevate Art by trashing Byrne and Perez and how wanky and dated and their proportions and how boring they are. I mean, all these things. And this is what happens, okay? I'm dragging on Allen Iverson because I don't like him. I don't want him to beat my team. I want my team to be better. I want Kobe to be the better guy. So I elevate Kobe. I, I, I think Kobe's way better one. Really, you know, athletically, Allen Iverson had different gifts than Kobe, and Kobe had different gifts. They weren't a direct comparison, but could they both score in bunches and blow you a mi- blow you away in different ways? Absolutely. And yet, often, we pick best writers. Claremont versus Marv Wolfman. They were both doing young, skewing books, both challenging for the charts. You know, uh, at Marvel, Claremont versus Bill Mantlo. I mean... Again, I walked right into this. I walked into a competitive, you know, Todd McFarlane. Go listen to the L Boys. One of my funnest podcasts I've ever recorded. He's sizing us all up. Larson Lee Lim Leifeld. The L Boys. The L Boys. He would say. Oh, your Leifeld. Oh, now I met Larson Lee Leifeld. I just got to meet Lim. And, and he would. Lim was at that convention. So, uh, competitive, sizing up competitors. Todd's looking, all these new guys coming through the doors. Why are they all named, why, why, why do they all have L names, right? So, then it's all about, you know, well, can I get this, uh, can I turn this short story into an, a mini series? Can I turn this mini series into a long form assignment? Can I turn this long form as, uh, assignment into a reboot? Give me a new number one. I've addressed repeatedly how much I schemed. Because my peers were getting these big launches. X-Force was me treating comic books like sports. I couldn't be left behind. I've done an entire mini episodes on this. You can you can listen to them. Uh, if they're about X-Force or Deadpool, it's probably covered. But X-Force, the, the X-Force anniversary, the two X-Force uh, should really underscore how hard I worked with Marvel sales. We got turned down. Uh, it, it always baffled me how they would resist putting X-Force into the works, but we finally made our case, break, broke through. And I mean, again, I always look at all the people who were opposing X-Force. They were opposing it, and yet we found them 5 million copies. When I proposed X-Force One-Shot earlier this year, as part of being a part of the Deadpool uh, uh, anniversary, uh, they weren't convinced that they were going to put on the schedule yet. And then through some coercion, they put it on the schedule. And lo and behold, I'm telling you, a book came out that made Marvel a quarter million dollars in profits. That's after tax tip costs. Okay. Um, you know, you, you, you're, 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 you're pulling in a quarter of a million. And that's, that's, I don't have those comiXology numbers. I don't have those worldwide numbers. It's still making them money. X-Force kill shot. It's a one shot called X-Force kill shot. Uh, you know, 100,000 units to to whatever, how many, $4 a pop. They get about two bucks a book. Do the math. I mean, it it, it goes the distance. And, uh, and I mean, again, with Comixology, with Worldwide, it's it's going to clear them 
you know, quarter million dollars. It, it, when it's included in trades, when it's included in other collections, it just goes to, but it's not a, it's not a book that they had conceived of on their own from the publishing standpoint to put on the schedule. And I did have many long discussions and it was, I, I remember the weekend my son graduated, I was waiting to hear if it was going to for sure go on the November schedule. And that was early June. And then I got the clearance the next week and we were off to the races and the book ended up happening. But often uh, I was, you know, campaigning for something to be uh, put on the schedule that I felt would help the company and in, in every result did. But it was, I had to convince people to give me the shot. Give me a shot. Just like get me off the bench, put me in the game, let me pitch, let me throw, let me shoot. Okay. Uh, the thing is, that comes down also to, you know, again, the competitive nature. And if comics aren't competitive, in a recent episode I did, just a real recent episode I did about Captain America and politics, the writer who got the book, Steve Englehart, got the book uh, with the directive from the editor-in-chief who was Roy Thomas at the time. And again, I am reading this directly from Steve Englehart's memories of this, his memoir of this time. In Steve Englehart's own words, he says... I was told, look, by Roy Thomas, you can uh, really do whatever you want, but if the sales don't turn around, we'll fire you and give the job to somebody else because this book is about to be canceled. So it's the, let's ride in on the big horse and save, you know, save the book scenario. I've been part of that. That's what I did with New Mutants. I can only, again, I'm drawing on my own experience. It's the way that I get the most knowledge. They weren't going to cancel Spider-Man when Todd was given Spider-Man. Todd could have kept it at the same level and as the next guy and the guy before that and the guy before that. And Spider-Man was always a, a, a bestseller in the, in the episodes I've done, podcasts I've done called The Numbers. I believe the first one called The Numbers. I detailed the sales and how really the one thing that never changed is that Spider-Man is in the top five for Marvel all the time, no matter the decade, the year, 60s, 70s, 80s. Okay. It, it, it's the flagship. He carried sometimes three books, four books, five books. Amazing Spider-Man. Peter Parker, Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. Marvel team up. Web of Spider-Man. Okay. Uh, adjectiveless Spider-Man. I mean, this guy, Spidey super stories. I mean, we, we, you can really, you know, make the case. Spider-Man has always been a top seller, but it wasn't enough for Todd. He wanted to push it to new heights and he did to the tune of 3 million copies. And I'll get to that in a minute. Because that means something. That really means something. And, and to my peer group, it means something. I was super competitive with my peer group as well. I wanted to know what they were doing at all times. I wanted to know so I could counteract those moves. I wanted to know so I could keep up. When Jim Lee called me the day Spider-Man number one came out, and I've covered this in a couple podcasts, he called me that afternoon to tell me that he was given the green light to be the new summer release for one year from now. It's me, he said. It's me. I got the X-Men. I'm going to be number one. I went, oh my gosh, I'll be left behind. That's when I scrambled to do X-Force. Again, competitive. I was going to what Ron Lim was doing, what 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 uh, Eric Larson was doing, uh, what all the guys in, in, in the pond were doing, all the new people, Dale Keown, Mark Tixier, even though Mark way predates all of us. You know, he had kind of gotten his act together, meeting his deadlines, getting better assignments, and getting much better assignments. Silvestri had been in the business years before me, but I was paying attention to him. Jim Valentino, he's my peer. I'm also watching the new guys. Who's getting new jobs? Who, who's, who's getting the new breakthroughs, okay? Who's this guy? Who's that guy? It, it's very competitive. 
It's the way these guys protect their starting jobs in the NBA and in the NFL and the MLB and in hockey, the same way we do it at comics. And it gets down to coaching. So the Shaq Kobe Lakers, before they were champions, they had two coaches, one, Dell Harris, who got fired because he wouldn't use Kobe in the way that uh, Dr. Buss wanted Kobe utilized. Dr. Buss favored Kobe, saw the magic in him. The literally, the you know, the, the way that he competed and scored and, and, and Dell Harris didn't want to bring him off the bench, didn't want to put him in the starting lineup, didn't want to play him, had fa- favored other care, uh, other players. He was told, you better play p- play Kobe more. That would have worked out for him, by the way, had he had a winning record. But uh, he got fired midseason. Kurt Rambis, assist- assistant, came on board. He coached until they got Phil Jackson, the winningest coach in the NBA, the most spectacular back-to-back three-peats with Michael J- Michael uh, Michael Jordan. And Phil, at his first press conference, said, you know, it's going to take a couple years. We just, you know, they haven't. this squad hasn't made it out of the first round of the playoffs, which is why I'm here. If they had, I wouldn't be here, he said. But I'm going to maximize them. I'm going to bring in the right pieces. And we're going to hopefully get a championship here in a couple of years. When they won in his first year, he was like, I didn't expect this. I didn't expect them to gel as much and as well as they did. But creative teams and editors and coaches matter, just like sports. Okay, your coach in sports is your editor in comics. Bob Harris was recruiting us. When Bob Harris called up Jim Lee, called up myself, called up Bulls Portacio, said, I'm changing the guard. I'm moving off of Brett Blevins. I'm moving off of Mark Silvestri on X-Men and putting him on uh, Wolverine, where I'm moving John Buscema off completely. Somebody's eventually in this, in this, uh, you know, musical chairs is going to lose a gig. And so Mark got moved to, uh, to Wolverine from the X-Men. Brett Blevins was moved out of the X-Men office. I inherited the new mutants. Jim Lee inherited the X-Men. Uh, and then X-Factor, that team was removed. Paul Smith had done a few fill-ins. They were kind of knocking around other, other ideas, uh, they moved off of that, went into Wills Portacio. And, uh, you know, when Jim took on the regular, the new launch of the X-Men, which he was expected to do by a full year, Wills was groomed as the guy that would step in and take that. Then Larry Stroman took over for, for Wills. Bob was building a winning culture. He had inherited um, a, a, a team of creatives, some of which who had been there, on there a long time. The writer of The New Mutants had been on that book for years and years. It was in last place in the X-Men office. It was lagging in sales. I was told they were going to cancel it. They were giving me a shot. I was coming off the bench. I was getting my shot, and I had to prove myself. Jim Lee had been on The Punisher, you know, um, and on The Punisher, he had been doing well, but he wasn't doing anywhere near the X-Men, anywhere near the X-Men numbers. But they moved him into the X-Men and finally, you got an artist who gave more nuanced, uh, stylistic, fan-pleasing fan renderings of Wolverine, who was now back to being the starring character uh, you know, in the book. And, and again, Chris Claremont needed a little more focus. He had been on the book over a decade. He was himself getting, I think, a little tired of writing the same old stories and was re- reaching and stretching. And sometimes it's nice to have day, uh, like in the, in the day of the life, But I remember as an X-Men fan, I I bought an entire issue of Jubilee, Dazzler, Rogue, and maybe Storm going shopping. It just wasn't the X-Men that I I wanted. Now, it's looking back, it's a nice one-off, but it was kind of in a series of of downturn stories. I was hired right around that same time to do kind of a parody. The X-Men job that I did, I had to step up and do the best with doing a parody of a DC crossover called Invasion. It was an open, Chris wanted to parody them. So, So I put on my best 
you know, Rob Liefeld doing, you know, commercial art and, and tried to meet Chris where he needed to be met by the same time drawing Longshot and Wolverine, Colossus and Storm when I could, where I could, as commercially and as appealing as I possibly, you know, could present them. But uh, the entire changeover in that X-Men office was due to a competitive nature, like sports, changing the roster, okay? And again, my kids, I have watched them have so many different coaches throughout all of their different sports, football, throughout, um, through, through, through high school, through travel ball, which they did extensively. Uh, and you meet and, and you meet stubborn coaches who are like, it's my way or the highway. And sometimes they get by and they win that way. Or others who are like, I need to flex. I need to change. I need to, to move. Image Comics was such a big radical movement. And I've covered this in an entire podcast about how we caused the death of Superman by becoming the number two company with seven comics. Yes, I said that by becoming the number two comic company with seven comic books. We shook the rafters of DC Comics to the point where they had to come up with something, an event to get back in the game to 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 uh, alert readers as well as retailers. Like, don't take don't take your eyes off us. We're an exciting comic company. We're capable of doing something that you least expect. And by taking the existing creative company and getting cold water splashed in their face and getting together and having a couple group sessions and then moving in some, you know, the New Mutants writer had moved over to do. Superman work. So they got someone new in the door, fresh from Marvel, who had been there forever as an editor and a writer. But they assembled this Death of Superman story and it worked. The new kind of schematic uh, with the same talent, Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway had all been doing amazing, splendid work. Uh, Dan Jurgens' Superman books for about a year and a half prior to Death of Superman were some of my favorites. Art to Bear was inking him, Brett Breeding was inking him. I just loved everything Dan was doing. The storyline, the approach, the ferocity, the consequences were upped. And Superman, boom, took off. But even better still, and again, full accolades to the entire team and all of their, because uh, I've read about the the retreats they had and plotting it out. What was more impressive than the death of Superman was the reign of Superman that followed for one year. Four different Superman. And where was the real Superman? And and, and was he really dead? And how are they going to bring him back? And, and different people were taking over different titles. And it was as thrilling. They released them week by week by week. It was great management. You know what isn't great management? Is the DC-52. Which famously, you know, again, Dan DiDio, do you think he's competitive? He was tired of losing... To Marvel, he had never beaten them. He wasn't beating them market share year in, year out. And he told his bosses, I can do this. My new boss is at Warner Brothers. Now now the spotlight's on us. I want to show them. I want to impress them. So he goes, the new 52, 52. we'll do the new DC 52. He, 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 he comes up with a plan, but it's not a plan. He even admits, it was just see what sticks to the wall. You know what a plan is? Launch the 52. Tell everybody you have five issues to do whatever you want. But at the end of those five issues, we are all going to meet. All 52 comics are going to meet at a destination called the rise of dark side or the coming of, you know, black Adam or, you know, the rise of more the sorcerer from the 30th century. They have so many giant cosmic villains opportunities, but that wasn't in the cards. No one was given that directive. I worked on Hawk and Dove, Deathstroke, Hawkman, and Grifter. I worked on four of those books within the first year. I, I was asked to take over Deathstroke, Hawkman, and Grifter due to failing sales and seeing if I could stabilize them or bump them up. I did, but it was completely off, like off of just 
ingenuity, cre creative ingenuity, no game plan, no plan to unify everybody at, at, at the issue 12s, no plan to unify everybody at the issue 6s. That's a plan. That's like I'm talking about with the Reign of Superman. Hey, everybody, you got Swamp Thing, you got Booster Gold, you got Superman, multiple Superman books, multiple Batman books, you got, you know, Green Lantern titles. We are all going to meet at the seventh issue with cliffhangers in the sixth issue, which is going to all, you're going to, you're going to battle, you know, Darkseid and his hordes or Mordrew and his hordes or Black Adam and the rise of, of these, you know, magic menaces. I mean, dark evil, uh, you know, dark magic, um, introduced. It's just, that's a plan. That's a guy who has, who is running the triangle, who is running a system. Um, the DC 52 had no plan like that, which is why it was quickly, uh, defeated after a couple months. Marvel said, thank you for warming the chair. We're back. You, you made a big splash. You grabbed a lot of headlines, but you didn't hold onto those eyeballs because you had no plan. A great coach, a great editor has a plan. When I took over the New Mutants, I told my editor, there's going to be Cable. Then we're going to have Domino, Deadpool. We're going to go to Strife. I'm not going to tell you yet who Strife is, but it's going to have a big twist. And they're intrinsically connected. That's why in New Mutants 87, you get Strife and Cable debuting in the same issue. Okay, it's called We Have a Plan, okay? Uh, you know, I know from talking to Jim, Magneto gets the Acolytes, you know, expands his 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 grip he was gonna uh, you know move into a more grounded story after having more of a cosmic you know in space storyline and go to the omega red story it, it, it's a plan there's a plan okay i knew that when todd took over spider-man he was doing the craven issues they were going to then be followed by the wolverine wendigo issues there's a plan and it says look right here i'm going to give you you know this guest star and then we're going to have a team up make it basically marvel team up with spider-man and wolverine the two most popular marvel characters and they're going to battle wendigo which is one of the more popular storylines that john byrne did when he was doing the x-men those are plans they succeed when you have a plan it's amazing how people go oh wow i see this i see this plan the entire plan of the x of x-force again Issue two, once we knew Deadpool was moving up, we're introducing Kane. I can only speak for myself. I can only speak for my own competition, but why does that matter? Well, it matters because that segues into, again, what did Roy Thomas tell Steve Englehart? We'll let you do this as long as you improve the sales. If you don't, you're fired. That's why. When people go, why'd you introduce Cable and Deadpool? Well, I did it because I didn't have Wolverine. I didn't have Spider-Man. I had to create characters that people cared about so that they would like my book. And the, and, the, and what's what's the most important thing? I say this at my my, my, my my live appearances at shows when I do my panels because I needed a job. I needed to make sure that next year, next month, next week, I had a job in this business, okay? And if you liked, you the reader, the fan liked what I was doing, you'd be back. You'd buy copies, maybe more copies. That gave me job security. It was all about job security. And... Sometimes job security is achieved more, maximized more with a plan. So the, the reason I harp on how well our plans did is because I believe that like sports, at the end of the day, you get a trophy because you won. Well, going back to that first, we don't, we're not out to best each other. Why do then the companies trump their sales? Why did Dan DiDio do the DC52? He wanted to beat Marvel in market share. Wait, beat? Best? outsell isn't that out isn't that a performance based thing i was told you know 
read to you 40 minutes ago. That's not what we do as artists. As artists, we don't we don't perform. We don't best each other. That's bullshit. We are out to sell books. And sometimes the greatest motivation is outselling the other guy or keeping pace with the other guy. Spider-Man, let's launch it. You know, it achieves 3 million. Holy crap. We're on to something new. Jim, you're going to do something. Oh, Rob, you're going to wedge yourself into what happened? 3 million, 5 million, 7 million. Why do I say that? Because I think those are like world championships. Those, those are sales achievements that I've covered with you were tried. They were tried to achieve at Marvel again for the better part of a decade. But what happened and why I believe it's special and look, Deathless Superman gets its accolades too with its, with its, you know, 5 million, 4 million. It's something, I think it's number three. It goes X-Men, X-Force, Death of Superman, Spider-Man in terms of best-selling, you know, number ones, launches, best-selling comics. But then the image guys moved over and Spawn sold a million. Youngblood sold a million. Youngblood Strike File sold a million, okay? Darker Image sold a million. Wildcats sold a million, okay? Uh, Brigade sold a million. Supreme sold a million. The guys in Image... We have these championship belts around us because we achieved sales that no one else had ever achieved. That's not bragging. That's just a fact. It's it's weird that I'm saying it because I'm part of it. But hey, it's like I've pivoted and you know, it's like Shaq won four championships and now he gets to remind you of it when he's doing TNT on his broadcasting before each game three to four times a week. And then when the playoffs get here almost every day, well, that's what he gets to do. And Kenny gets to remind you that he won two rings in Houston. And they all remind Charles Barkley that he won nothing. That as great as he was, he didn't win anything with Philadelphia and he didn't win anything with Phoenix. And they shove it in his face. Well, I am telling you right now, we absolutely um, achieved what I call championship status, okay? Uh, We achieved sales figures and success in this business that no one ever has. And you know what? That, that, that nowadays, I'll tell you, it's it's undercut. It's even, imagine if the NFC champions, the Rams versus, versus the, the, the 49ers a couple weeks back and the Bengals versus the Kansas City Chiefs. Imagine if both of those were separate conferences that would not send a champion to meet each other. It'd be the NFC champion and the AFC champion and they don't meet in the Super Bowl because that's what you got going on right now in comic books because the, everything used to go through Diamond. But two years ago, DC announced, we're leaving. We're forming a distribution network with a company called Lunar. And they are going to distribute all our books through these systems. And you have to now order through Lunar. You have to fill out a form through Lunar. You have to do shipping through Lunar. We are not going to be carried in a catalog where we compete with Marvel or Image or Dark Horse or Boom or any of them any longer. DC is its own thing. They have their own sales. They, they marched to the sound of their own drum. Now, Marvel then followed last year and announced we are going with Penguin, Penguin Publishing. We've all been to many bookstores on Amazon. You can order all manner of publications from Penguin. Penguin got into the comic book distribution business. They don't publish. Lunar doesn't publish their distribution networks. But what they do is they release sales charts. And now... There's three sales charts because Diamond still has Image and Boom and it still has Dark Horse and it has Dynamite and 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 they all have their own sales figures. And then DC has its own sales figures. And then Marvel has its own sales figure because now they don't all run through one person so there's no chart that says Diamond does not hold the sales figures from Marvel, DC, Image, Dark Horse, Boom, Dynamite, so on and so forth, Okay. IDW. Now, 
Marvel is its own champion. Penguin just has its own chart. They don't compete with anyone. Lunar has its own chart. Batman. Now, Marvel, some books get sold through Diamond, but it's such a split figure that it can't be quantified as being a final any, anywhere near us a final sales figure. So again, it's like it's like now splitting up. Well, the conferences are just the champions, and we've removed a, a giant showdown because month in month out, comic books are now in multiple lists. So who's winning? And all and that benefits everybody because the best selling image book that month can say, "I'm the winner. I'm the king of all." Oh no, no, don't look over there, you know. But but over here, I'm being these other four companies. Don't don't look that the that the biggest two left. And they don't even compete with each other anymore. DC just says, here's what we sold. We sold this many. We don't compare what we sold. And we're, we're supposed to rely on their numbers and Diamond's numbers and Penguin's numbers. And maybe at the end of the year, somebody blends these all together, but they haven't yet. Because for much of the year, the Penguin, some of the marketplace was still able to order the Marvel books through Diamond. They pay more for it. But they don't want to deal with Penguin. They don't want to fill out the new form and, 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 and have the new account open. So a percentage of them are still ordering through Diamond. It costs them more money, but they don't care because it's less effort. But what I am supposing to you, and this is not wishful thinking, this is indeed 100% how sales are figured nowadays. The almighty, you know, co competition between the charts has changed. I'm not saying no one proclaims themselves champions. We have multiple champions now because everyone wants to say I was the best of the year. Over one week period, Image was announced that King Spawn was the number one book of 2021. But then over the weekend, there was some squabble, some, you know, obviously some, some meeting of the minds, some emails exchanged, some sales figures. And on the following Monday, Diamond announced, whoops, sorry, this book from Boom Studios is number one by nine copies. They literally said, there was a recount. It's just like elections. It's a recount. We recounted. And now this book, and so King Spawn went to number two, and number two, the number two book had gone to number one. So the number uh, three book, you know, uh, stayed the same, really just one and two shifted. And so, uh, but it was all because nine copies, they went out of the way to tell you. Maybe it was called The House by the Lake. It's a new tiny in James the Fourth book that came out. It wasn't Berserker and it wasn't King Spawn. But it, again, it, there was a new number one by nine copies. I read this. I couldn't believe I was reading this. I followed all the links. I made sure I was reading it correctly. The other day, a guy said, I've outsold everybody in terms of toys. Well, what does that mean exactly? Did you outsell them unit to unit? Or did you ship 10 uh, assortments last year to the other guys? Six. Well, 10 assortments is always going to be six assortments. Because it's all, you know, you've added four more assortments than the other guys. So people are always competing. Why does Marvel issue press releases when they break sales figures. Why did IDW tell everybody that Snake Eyes number one had sold 10 times, almost 20 times what the existing Snake Eyes did? Because sales matter, achievements, championships, trophies, uh, the, the gold belt that you win at the end of the match when you win. You know, um, my kids, my son was given a participation trophy once and I was never more proud of him than when he was handed it. His team had come in last. My oldest son in flag football, his team lost almost every game. My youngest son, he won the championship in the same season. And they got shirts that said, you know, unbeaten, uh, never experienced loss, no loss, you know, 16-0 or whatever, how many games they played. 
and uh, we went to the big, you know, pizza party and gave out all the accolades. In the meantime, my oldest son, his team had finished last and, uh, and they gave him the participation trophy and he walked three feet and threw it in the trash and said, let's get out of here, dad. I don't need that. And I was, I'm like, Fred, cause that is, a, I'm not a big participation trophy guy, but when you are the best and you achieve the most and, 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 that's a, a sales figure that can be touted and shown that's, that's worth something to everyone. It's more than bragging rights. Okay. It's, it's pole positioning. The DC 52 was founded in order to try and achieve, achieve greater than Marvel. And again, had it had anything remotely resembling a, a fan. Okay. But like I said, with sports, we all Say, who's the best pitcher? We're all going to have an argument. Who's the best quarterback? We're all going to have an argument. Who's the best running back? No one's going to agree because we'll, we all have our favorites. We all have our fans. And, and we'll we'll ch slowly chip away. Oh, this guy can't make his free throws. Okay? Oh, uh, this guy's not a good three-pointer. Look, I also, you know, I saw how Steph Curry changed the game. Three-point shot. You know what was a three-point shot? In comic books was computer color. I've covered that. Image Comics introduced that. We introduced today's advanced computer color. All the beautiful color that you're seeing today is because Jim Lee, myself, we invested hundreds of thousands of dollars into getting computer, uh, dedicated computer graphic uh, systems, coloring systems set up in our studios. We hired away in some in some ways. We 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 taught the talent. And in doing so, we were able to exceed expectations, create a new realm of competition. And don't tell me it's not competitive because some of those same guys that were coloring for me when we started in 93 were being wooed away with bigger contracts. I wooed away a guy from Steve Olaf, Ole Optics. I covered all this in the, um, you know, what the world without image comics, the very first episode of season three of this Rob Observations podcast deals with extensively competition. I hired away the best guy at Ole Optics to come to my house to lead my guys to make me better. And then later, my guys would also be wooed away by higher contracts. I hired Stephen Platt to do profit, and I, I gave him an exorbitant contract, thousands and thousands, multi-thousands more than he was being paid for him to jump over. Jim Lee hired Travis Charest away from D.C. to come to Wildstorm. Everybody, it's competitive because maybe you can put together the squad that changes the book. Archie Goodwin. Hired John Byrne and Terry Austin to take over X-Men because the Dave Cockrum, Chris Claremont X-Men, the, the excitement over them had waned. The books were coming out by monthly. Dave was slowing down. He, Archie Goodwin believed that if he got the right talent to team with Chris Claremont, the right artist that could meet the deadlines, that could get the book out monthly, he could turn the ship around, and he did. And the X-Men is a fantastic example of this. Jim Shooter, I talk about him often, got Frank Miller allowed Frank Miller to remove the writer, gave Frank the, the the entire reins of Daredevil, which was bi-monthly, also about to be canceled, turned it around, became Marvel's bestseller. You don't think Jim Shooter thinks that he made some competitive sports moves? He did. He switched players. He switched the starting, the starting lineup, and he got greater results. The crossovers that you get each and every year do not exist for you to look and say that they're pretty. They're to exist to drive you to buy more. They, are, they exist specifically to win 
the numbers war to get you to spend more money on their comics than you're spending on the comp the, the competitors or to keep you spending the dollars that you're already spending and so that they don't lose out on you. It is all in the name of competition. It is all in the name of success because this stuff does not pay for itself. There are salaries, there are employees, there are assistants, there are costs, there are printing, okay? So these people are always looking to push the margins and we've talked about how now all the gimmicks, the variant covers, the I'll sign this with the CGC label and, and you can witness it and I'll give you this ticket and we have yet to see all of the ways that this is going to continue to expand because numbers matter, performance matters, bragging rights matter. Okay. Marvel launches something. They want to make sure it's going to do really good. They're going to put you in a new area, a, a, a new headspace for these books. Well, they don't trust the creative team alone. They're putting 25 variant covers, not 25 retail covers, 25 covers that you could A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, I mean, all the way down the list. Which one are you ordering? How many are you ordering? And their sales forces out there pushing, 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 pushing because they want that to launch at such a giant number that it reaffirms that you should be paying attention to it and that that number will reach you and you'll go, wow, how often do you see, oh, this book, this, this movie was number one. It surprised everyone at the box office. When I was in the early 80s, that didn't matter. We didn't, the only time I had heard about box office success was because Star Wars was number one for six months. But most of the time, the charts didn't really come into play until the late 80s, early 90s. And the magazines like Entertainment Weekly and Premier Magazine and, and Rolling Stone started giving them greater notice and printing the actual box office, making charts. Charts. Why do charts exist? To show who's winning and who's losing. That is the number one reason the charts exist. Just like standings, just like playoff seedings, just like playoff games, wins, losses, championships. Boom. Sales matter. For me and my peers, we have always viewed the million-selling books. Again, it wasn't just Spider-Man, X-Force, X-Men. We then went on to Image and did it again repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly when it was an era that it could be done. And when it needed to be done, we did it. Again, favorite Spider-Man artist. I've walked into that. Some guys will tell me John Romita Jr. Some guys will tell me his dad, John Romita Sr. Some people like me, Steve Ditko, won't accept anything but Steve Ditko. The McFarland fans are going to come for you. The Mark Bagley fans are greater than you could possibly imagine, okay? It's competitiveness. It's sports. It's, I want my guy to be better than you. Come what may, and I'm going to tell you why he's not. Because ah, he's drawing that for a distraction. Or he does this for this, okay? Again, John Byrne is still trying to tell you that he did draw more backgrounds than he is credited with to this day on his message boards. And he, he brings up, you know, old school criticism. The, the guy is still obsessed with the way he was portrayed in the 80s. Why? Because he wants to be viewed greater than he believes the respect that he's being given and deserves. And that is why sports and comics are the same. Stats. We have, you know what? Comic books doesn't have a Hall of Fame yet, but they have awards that honor lifetime achievements. And everyone, you know, everyone wants their, their, their two to the horn. The guy who is podcasting to you right this minute, right this very minute, does very little in regards to anything critically acclaimed. But I look at every assignment as to how can I draw eyeballs towards this? How can I expand? How can I take Snake Eyes from 3,500 sales and give him 70,000 sales? Give him a giant boost. I wanted Snake Eyes to be back out there, G.I. Joe to be better known. Yes, of course, I am bringing up my own statistics. I know those the most intimately. But as I said, nowadays, nowadays, that was a different time. When I signed on to do Snake Eyes, it was one distributor. Diamond controlled everything in that time. 
DC is with someone else. Marvel is with someone else. There is no blended chart as of yet. No blended chart to show who is doing what, who's being the best. And people love that, actually. I think everyone likes that because everyone gets bragging rights. DC's number one. Marvel's number one. Image is number one. They all get to brag. They all get to be number one because it matters. So I, I began this by reading something to you that I am vehemently opposed to about not being competitive. No, you want to put your art on Instagram and sh hang it on a digital gallery so that people say I like it or not. That's fine. That is really just admiration of art. But when you're going to put your stables in front of it, you're going to ship it to stores and you're going to put a charge on it, then it's competitive. And it's always been competitive and it's always going to be competitive. And this is not the first and only time that we are going to discuss comics and sports and how closely um, sewn together they are. Because you know you have your favorites and you know you have guys you cannot stand. And you have already created those arguments to support your stance on each and every one. And that is why it is so funny. Remember, take this book over and turn the sales around or you're going to be fired. Why? I thought it didn't matter. No, it does matter. Sales matter. Success matters. Charts matters. Standings matters. Playoff seating matters. Okay? And, and that's why every week, every week, we tune in and we get the standings. Who's number one in college? Oh, it's, it's, it, that is most like comics at all because it's a group of people deciding. It's not wins and losses because you can't possibly configure because it's all different conferences. So they go, well, I think this guy's number one. Well, I think this team's number one. There are some teams every year, every year, no matter how many seasons like USC has lost here in Southern California since Pete Carroll, they still, the writers, the AP, the Associated Press, they go, oh, but it used to be good. I think they will be good this year. And they give them the benefit of the doubt. And somehow USC is on every year's opening top 25, even though they fall out almost immediately. That is like comic books. My guy is still the best. I'm going on his past record. I'm putting him up there. It's it, it's a bunch of guys bringing their own preconceived favoritism of their players and teams and characters to the boards to determine you know how well they're going to be positioned. Because once again, positioning matters. Seating matters. Charts matter. Okay? Comics and sports. There'll be way, way, way more of this in the future. Okay, so 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 that is my, you know, I came right out of a Super Bowl and I wanted to discuss that and I put some topics on the table, but there's a part two to this and it's coming sooner than you think and it'll give you more of how I thought and why I selected certain aspects of my publishing schedule when I was at Extreme and when I was at Image and that'll definitely be an upcoming issue, episode and you've been primed here. You've been primed right here in the fires of how I uh, and why I proposed Cable, Deadpool, X-Force in the beginning to stay in the hunt, to be competitive, to not be left behind. But given those opportunities, I had to succeed. If you're going to take me off the bench and put me in, coach, I better score for you. Just like Roy Thomas says, you better improve sales or you're going to get fired. I always heard that. I needed to improve sales, okay? I needed to continue to have a job, okay? Because I liked being the starting QB in my world of comic books and I wanted to keep that job and the only way is throwing touchdowns and touchdowns were sales and that's why the millions of sales that me and my peers achieved set us up and put us in a category that's just different it just is why hasn't it been repeated are there not exciting times and now more covers than ever they put 40 covers on Star Wars number one and it didn't sell a million copies in 2015 and that's when I knew holy moly holy moly that this is not going back. If it was 2014, it was 2014. Whenever Star Wars regained uh, before the new the new trilogy was released. So here's the deal. You guys know that at the end of the, every show, I talk to you about how badly we need your uh, reviews and we need your your 
five stars and your recommendations and 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 the reviews that you re- read uh, the reviews that you leave on the platforms I read at the end of every show and I appreciate so much that you guys have been so generous with all the ways that you have shared your positive uh, uh, view of the show and you're, you're sharing it with view with your word of mouth on social media all across these different platforms and I cannot tell you and thank you enough I am going to read from my good friend Fims P-H-Y-M-N-S, Fims. He left a review that says, energetic, enthusiastic, essential. Five stars. Thank you, sir. It says, like many during the pandemic, I have reverted back to the things I know and love, that being comics history from the 1990s. I've scored stuff off eBay and dollar bins, rediscovering old favorites, reigniting my own creative work in comics. It is a joy to hear Rob's extreme, pun unintended, passion and zeal for his own history and the history that influenced him. He tells the stories. He brings the receipts. He does it professionally, honestly, and in an exciting manner. It is a joy that he does this for the fans. I look forward to everything he has come up with. He's no dinosaur. He is not done yet. He's just getting started. Rob, serve him. Go. Thanks for doing this podcast, Rob. Much love to you, your family, and friends around the world. Thank you, Fims. He left that on the Apple Podcast review on... uh, February 13th. Okay. So this is as recent as it comes. I appreciate it so much. Um, thank you Fims for reaching out. I really enjoyed, uh, just your enthusiasm and your passion. Know that my enthusiasm and my, my passion is, is absolutely extreme. And I love sharing with you guys on social media. You can reach me. I am on Instagram, on Twitter, on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld, Rob Liefeld, blue check. That tells you it's me on Twitter. It's a little longer. I'm at Robert Leifel, another blue check. You'll really, you'll know it's me you're talking to. On Facebook, I'm everywhere. This page, Observations with Rob Leifeld, has its own page. Please join it. Talk to us. We'll talk back. I am all over different groups everywhere on Facebook. I love it. Sci-fi groups, fantasy groups, comic book groups, Silver Age, Golden Age, art groups. You'll find me. You throw a rock in Facebook, you will hit me. I am there. I love talking to you guys. The interactions we have are some of my favorites. Please reach out. I try and respond to every inquiry. Every time you guys talk to me, I am trying my best to um, reach back and, and talk to you guys back. And thank you so much for communicating with me at all in any way. So those are my social media forums. We have wrapped this show. You guys, thank you so very much for being part of the show today. And, and, and you're going to pledge to me as we do at the end of every show. We pledge to each other. We're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to get the rest we need. We're going to take days off when we need to. We're going to read good comics, watch movies, listen to music that inspire us and relax us. And, uh, and, and just really your mental health, your physical health, your emotional health, it is of the most important. And, uh, so please, please, it's been a crazy bunch of years. Take care of yourself. Okay. Above all else and make sure and circle back here, um, and stay safe because we will most definitely talk again soon. (laughs) 